0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, this episode was brought to us by 420 Australia, Organic Gardening Solutions and Bodhi Seeds. This one's going to be a big one folks, we're going to do a two-parter, so without further wait. Alrighty, so a big welcome and thank you to possibly the most prolific breeder in the industry, Um, being held in more high regard than probably any other breeder I know, you know, love to welcome Bodhi, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thank you, it's beautiful to be here, I'm really happy to have a nice conversation with you.
0: Awesome, so the first question I like to start off every interview with is, what was your first experience with cannabis, you know, how did you get introduced to it?
1: Huh, I mean that's a good question uh you know when I was a teenager people were smoking and I think you know that was like the mid late 80s and there was a lot of good strains around but I never really connected with cannabis I was really into um I was really into like ancestral and shamanic herbalism and so I kind of thought cannabis was just kind of ho-hum and petty and that's what everybody else did and I You know, I was really into getting the Of the Jungle catalogs and the Church of Tree of Life and ordering all these strange and unique plants and try those. And I was, you know, I really enjoyed mushrooms, was a big one, and cactus. And I really never got the full download from cannabis early on. I smoked it once or twice and didn't really do anything. And I really didn't find that deep connection until uh, on one of my journeys uh, with one of my friends... And we were in Belize in the, I think it was right around the '90s, and it was kind of the, it was a little bit rough and tumble. I think we we're the only white people there, and you were just, you know, we were. I think I was 20, and we were just, we just cruise around and bumble around, you know, and out of care in the world, no, no clue that it's pretty dangerous. It was like the height of the crack era, and that's when I was going through. My friend's like, "Let's get some, you know, let's get some pot before." We go to the, you know, the Mayan ruins. And I'm like, okay. And so we bumbled around until so we found this Rasta guy. And he led us through all these places. And I'm sure it was so sketchy. And eventually we got this little foil-wrapped ganja. And, we you know, we paid the guy. We scurried off. And we kept it with us. And my friend actually, when we finally made it to, I believe it was Tikal, he's like, hey, do you want to try this? this pot? And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, let's do this. And that's when I got it like I' it was when I finally realized that cannabis is like nature's Wi-Fi it's like it is the plant that allows us to connect with all of creation on a really subtle deep human and plant-based level it's just I really understood that this is like the link that keeps us bound to our garden planet it's like it's it's almost like our plant ally supreme it's almost like I don't even explain it. I just, I got it. And, you know, cannabis was good, and I would smoke it here and there. And then I really, really got the download from it when I was in the Himalayas and the whole cultures with the babas and the hash and the rubbing. And when I smoked in the Himalayas, like, I was hooked, and I knew that this was my, one of my fasts. And it also kind of links back to when I was doing a lot, ayahuasca and I had these visions, in the you know, and the plant ayahuasca was like, you know, you're meant to work with plants, but it's not ayahuasca, it's another plant and that I mean these are all stories within stories that can all be linked up, but it's just through a series of deep reverence for nature and plants and people, I it, it awakened in me this connection with cannabis and I don't know, I, I I guess that's the first time would be maybe at those temples.
0: So do you think for people do, who maybe have more of that um, mainstream connection to cannabis and maybe haven't found their spiritual connection with it, do you think that maybe trying to participate in you know such a, an activity would be a good way to try to you know reestablish that link within yourself?
1: Yeah, I almost think it's for people that have kind of lost that link or can't find that link, and I think any working with cannabis in any way could be totally mundane it could be spiritual it could be just commercial i mean i always like the thing now it's like is all the guys all the bros now that grow cannabis and basically they're caring for this female plant and they're creating this relationship it's like almost nourishing their feminine it's getting them in the garden and when everybody says oh it's a gateway drug and i'm like yeah it's a gateway drug to gardening you know maybe the (laughs) the fridge and a few other things but I think anyway you interact with it, and I always wonder, you know, maybe back in the 20s, if it wasn't demonized and it wasn't scheduled and it wasn't run out, what the world would be like today if we had cannabis for like the last whatever it was, 180 years. It would be a totally different world, I think, you know? I think there would be a lot more compassion. There would be a lot more art. There would be a lot more connection to nature and each other. I think it's just this, it's this amazing force that's kind of coming back to reclaim who we really are as stewards of this amazing place.
0: Okay, and so I mean, you mentioned mushrooms, and on your Instagram, I've seen things like tobacco and poppies. Where do these other kind of ethno botanical plants sit um, in regards to cannabis for you? know, do they all kind of sit on the same shelf, or do you use them for different purposes?
1: Uh, I think you know they're they they're all tapping into like a similar place, but on a different kind of wavelength. And you know, I I don't really. I grow poppies w- once in a while more for the beauty I, I'm not a it's not really my th- thing and tobacco I enjoy to send my like prayers up to the creation matrix maybe once or twice a month and mostly I grow it for the beauty and it really is a protector plant so I love to plant it all around the house all around the gardens and I think it has a really deep connection in, in India a lot of times I know a lot of people like to smoke cannabis and tobacco together and I see where, you know, maybe it tweaks out the flavor and da-da-da-da-da, but there is a beautiful kind of connection, whereas tobacco is a very male plant, and cannabis is a very female, so you put those together and you have like a potent kind of combination, and a lot of the babas and sadhus in India and the Himalayas, they mix those two along with other herbs.
0: It's a really interesting analogy around the, uh, you know, the kind of unification of the male and the female plant. Do you mm-hmm. find that mixing tobacco and cannabis is kind of uh, overall a better for you or it's just better for a certain purpose?
1: I think if that's your, you know, I, I think whatever works for people, whatever gets them to the place they need to be to find those realizations is great and beautiful for them. Personally, for me, I don't usually mix them unless I'm, In a place, you know, if I'm in the Himalayas, a lot of time everybody's mixing. So I just go with it, and I'm usually addicted to nicotine by the end of the trek. But, um, you know, they're plants. There's also a lot of other plants that people mix in. There's like a calamus. It's called vacha, and it cools the smoke. There's a Himalayan uh, shamanic recipe where they use uh, mugwort and night-blooming jasmine flowers with the hash. Like, there's a lot of alchemical blending of herbs that can really— push the cannabis experience into a more focused kind of beam If that makes sense i'm trying not to be too esoteric but there's a lot of herbs that can help they, they say like bridle, kind of like you would put a saddle on a horse it allows you to ride it better it allows you to, to go someplace longer without fatigue i mean i think it's a unique thing and i don't think people have so got into it there's a lot of artisanal hash making and a a lot of really new things, but you don't see too many blending philosophies, except maybe in pens where people are putting in fake terpenes and such. But it's all alchemical, I mean, really alchemical in its nature, but I, I kind of just like it straight straight up as buds in my pipe.
0: <laughs> okay. And so are there any um, kind of additives that are commonly available that you might recommend people could give a try if they're interested? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's, I'm trying to remember what it is, um, what is the name of that one? Herb? There's one herb that's really unique. Um, it's an, I think it's actually an Australian herb and as a powder. I think it's kind of, uh, not, uh, not a cactus and not a plant. What's that stuff? It's kind of like, um, uh, a succulent. No. Yeah. And, um, what's it called? Oh, kana. You can take Kana powder and put it on cannabis and it will erase the, uh, the feelings of like paranoia and you know people that get edgy on cannabis and they just can't handle it. It'll really take the uh, edge off. And okay. uh, in India, they use vacha, which is calamus, and that bridle[s] the plant and cools it for smoking. And it also keeps it from getting too out there. It kind of keeps it kind of focused. And what else? There's a lot of shamanic recipes. I know the one. in I haven't really. I tried to make my own version of the night blooming jasmine mugwort and hash but I couldn't get it really right so I think that's going to be in the future I'll try that one again but um, you know there's a lot of Native American herbs that are really good like that'll help out mobilia and Moline um, lots of things to cool the smoke and nourish the lungs I
0: think it's a whole
1: realm that people really need to explore because you know, there's so much to it
0: yeah without <laughs> doubt and so do you find that um, you're able to treat a lot of the things that are bothering you with this more kind of natural approach or do you still use some kind of western medicines so to speak
1: Uh, i use like a western allopathic medicine as an emergency medicine i don't think it has it really treats the problem and not the root cause of things and so i don't i really enjoy a lot of the ancestral herbalism, and like traditional Chinese medicine, um, Ayurveda, any kind of uh, thing that's working with meridians, energy plants, minerals, things that are really taking the body as a whole, and also taking into consideration things like uh, mental state, uh, you you know, even environment, uh, geography. I think everything plays into healing, but I think cannabis is our primary healing plant. It's kind of like the dog version of a plant it's like the thing that that is right there for us you know on every level from medical recreational spiritual you know it 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 covers all the bases
0: okay so with that being said the first strain you ever bred was that trying to create something medical something that's going to help you to better tap into these kind of you know streams of consciousness if you want to give it that term or was it more of a happy accident so to speak
1: I think the first time it kind of really it was a happy accident I think uh, uh, I got some seeds uh, from Mark Emery we went up and got some seeds one time a long time ago up in Canada and I don't remember which one it was but hermaphrodited I think it was a feminized one and I got seeds, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. So this is so easy. I could do this. And I'm like, you know, and I, I kind of played around and grew those out and, and said, wow, this is really unique. It's like – because before that, I was really into DJing and making music and blending things on that level and aromatherapy. So I was like, wow, I can take different, totally unique and different plants and bring them together to make some – in this kind of union or love to make brand new things. And I thought that was the most ultimate, beautiful thing. And then that kind of started my seed addiction and, and it just went from there.
0: So who were the first breeders you were buying when you developed your seed addiction? And I mean, the reason I asked that is because I'm sure a lot of people listening who buy your seeds would probably themselves consider that, that they have a seed addiction. So it's always interesting to know, you know, who was the breeders breeder? I
1: don't know. You know what? I, I used to kind of pore over those old catalogs, you know, and I used to always looked and I would like go over them and like find it, and I get my little a magic marker and circle all the ones I get and of course I you know I didn't I didn't have a lot of money so I could only get one or two. But I would kind of go uh, looking at descriptions and kind of look for ones that kind of I felt jived with me and it was funny it was uh, some of the flying old flying Dutch men, like the Fumacondios Dios and DJ Shorts ones always intrigued me because especially the f-13 is like it's a real bell ringer i'm like oh cool bell ringer that sounds right up my alley and anything kind of weird and unique and special i always look for kind of like a extreme possibilities i always look kind of for for me i I enjoy like the really fringe cannabis like the really unique odd weird maybe doesn't look that great maybe doesn't grow that great but it has a you know unique effects and even its own unique kind of spirit
0: okay So, I mean, the first question that comes to mind with that is, is you mentioned you had the seed bank catalogs. That's interesting. I I know that you've actually got quite an impressive collection of seed bank catalogs from years gone by. Was that like an intentional hobby or did it just kind of work out that you happened to accumulate them?
1: You know, I've always been like a treasure hunter and treasure gatherer. And so, anything that I'm passionate about, I really love like you know i collect records too so if i you know i'm all, I used to always in books like books were my first passion and then from there I we went to records and then when i wanted seeds i started selling my books and records to get seeds so <laughs> it, you know it's kind of morphs you know i also like crystals but not so much anymore because i kind of feel bad for the planet but um i don't you know i just love to gather and collect things that i'm passionate about and some of the all those catalogs are so unique and so fun and I don't know. It brings me a lot of joy. So, I can just
0: geek out, you know. You'd be the perfect person to ask this question to. I've long since held the view that that uh, photo of Neville in the hash den holding the the bricks of hash, you know, I, I think that's the most iconic photo in cannabis culture, so to speak. But you've probably got a far better um, having seen, you know, more magazines than I have. Do you, Do you agree with that? Or is there another photo which kind of stands out a bit more for you?
1: I don't know. You know, I I love all those photos. I especially, you know, I always love the sadhus, like smoking the chillum. Those always got me. They always looked so, like, regal and, and like, uh, divine and devout and just the plumes of smoke. But I totally agree with that that, uh, picture of Neville. And the crazy thing is, through synchronicity, I met the guy who took that picture.
0: Really? Was he an Afghan guy?
1: No, no. Actually, Neville – this is like – this is a story in itself – Neville took along a photographer when he went on, and is and kind of like a sidekick, like a Batman Robin situation, on his famous trip that went through Pakistan, or well, India, Nepal, and and um his name is Steve, and Steve took that picture, and that's where I kind of got that first uh eighty five seed bank catalog from him because he still had a a bunch left, and he would tell me some wild stories, and yeah, he actually took that picture, and actually all the pictures in that catalog.
0: Oh wow! Just as a bit of a Australian pride question, where do, where do you sit, Neville, in the hierarchy of breed Australian history, so to speak?
1: No, I knowing some of the deeper uh, human stories of him. I mean, I, I try not to put anybody on a pedestal. He definitely was a primordial, like archetype for gathering and dispensing and creating like, I don't know, he kind of like, he was almost like a, a seed of out of him himself, and he kind of bloomed in uh, in the Dutch scene, and really, through passion and drive, he collected seeds from America, from all over, from Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and really kind of jump-started that whole movement. I mean, along with Sensi and some of the older guys, I mean, you, I mean, you can say good about him, you can say bad. I, I think he was an amazing guy, and I would love to see him kind of come back out and And really shine again because you know I I really believe in respecting and nourishing our our elders and the people that come before us because there's a lot of knowledge and there's a lot of information and there's a lot of there's just a lot of I don't know good mojo in that and so I think novel's a pretty cool guy
0: (laughs) and I mean maybe he's a bit of a two-parter I've heard some rumors that he is considering maybe doing more things within the scene if he were to come back, would you? Would he be the type of person who you'd want to work with? And then as a follow-up, which breeders would you want to work with in like a collaborative sense? You know, are there any who you really kind of dig what they're doing and you think together you could do some cool stuff?
1: Maybe, you know, I I kind of thought about this. I kind of work, work here and there with friends or do stuff. I For commercially, I don't really work with – I never really thought of it. The only thing I thought of was kind of like I had a secret seed company that I was starting – called Synergy and it was gonna be working with all the breeders that I kinda respected as one offs and all the money would go to charity. So each so it's kinda like how, you know, the collabs with glass they come up with these one collabs of glass and it's like two famous glass artists and they make this thing and that's it and it's this beautiful piece. So I thought if we could if I could like find some of the breeders that I really respect and we could share pollen or share plants and create maybe like two strains each and each person gets to choose the charity, I thought that would be a really unique way to to work with people and make it for a good cause. And then for people I'd want to work with, you know, I don't know, because I don't want to like say people and then not say enough people and leave people out. But anyone that has a niche and is passionate about their work and really, you know, is so, I don't know, there's so many so many people, and so many people I respect, and it. it's like I almost don't want to start naming off names because I don't want to leave anybody out. But I would say anyone that's passionate, has their has their skill set down, has the way that they work down, and is uh, and has a niche, like has a, an avenue that they like to explore. I would be more than honored. It's just I can barely keep up with things here on my own since it's just me and my wife. Um, I don't have time to even brush my hair or brush my teeth, tie my shoes. I swear every day it just zips by, and I get to come out at the Emerald Cup. But I don't know. I mean, maybe later in the interview I'll come up with some names in different contexts, but I don't want to really name up names because I don't want to leave anybody out. I don't want to hurt any feelings. But if there's a lot of amazing breeders, and there's a lot of passionate breeders with good hearts, and those are the people I'd like to work with.
0: Yeah, Fantastic and so a question we've got from a lot of people was are you able to kind of explain the differences between your seed companies a lot of people are aware there's a few of them now something I personally was interested in is what is the distinction you know is do you look at a project and you think oh this is a supernatural selections project or you know is there kind of rules and then that you know dictates what each project falls into or is it a bit more loose than that
1: Kind of, it's almost like an like a artist that has a couple bands, you know, and they're like free to do whatever they want within the context of these bands. They don't get tied, you know. Like you're gonna want you to do this in this band, you're gonna only do that. So I would say, so Bodhi Seeds is kind of the original, and that's kind of like I can do. It's all about doing whatever I want. I can I can mash up hybrids. I can do elite crosses. I can weave things in this, it's kind of like just really freedom, It's but it's also the one that pays the bills and it's the one where I kind of have to cater to the flavor of the weeks and kind of add my own twist to some of the modern elite hybrids or make unique cool things and it's just kind of like, it's this the basic creative model and then Nereka is kind of, that's more the preservation angle and that's would be like uh, working with Heirloom and Land Race and sometimes Mostly those, maybe vintage, but not so much, but mostly just heirloom landrace preservation and that kind of anything that I collect when I travel, anything I, I get from other people with good graces. Uh, I also, all that money that is generated from Nereka goes to scholarships um, and to funds to keep on going and keep on collecting. So it's kind of just a preservation seed company. And, you know, there's a couple releases each year, and what I think is kind of fun or, fun to work out and what i think people would enjoy working with or just having their bank or their collection and that's kind of that and then supernatural selections is new and that's kind of like that's really what i'm really excited about because it's it's going back to the roots of things it's all it's no modern hybrids i mean it's using no modern lines so it's all land race uh vintage or heirloom and so i get and they're all f1 hybrids using these old things so i get to go back and I can create so many unique things because I'm not stuck in that kind of the stagnant uh, hyperbold gene pool that we have right now where everything's kind of mashed up, uh, kind of like Baskin and Robbins 31 flavors style, which is awesome. There's so much unique stuff to pop out of that. But this really gives me a chance to kind of blaze my own trail and go back to the countries that I've always loved and the places. And, you know, because all these seed lines, especially the vintage and the land race, they all have their own special – spirit and soul and effect and flavors and by combining these it's like it's it's pretty amazing like you take a Congolese and, an, and like a Kashmiri like so you're taking these beautiful Himalayan plants and you're merging them with these uh, you know deep humid tropical jungle strains and you're getting these extreme possibilities and from there you can really go all over the place and I think it's I don't know just for me it feels like instead of kind of like DJing it feels like producing music or it's I don't know it, and then so that's. <laughs> I'm not. Hope I'm not rambling too much. And then the the final one was just synergy. <laughs> and synergy is just me wanting to have fun connecting with people and a way to also give back to the community. But I'm so busy; it's really hard to kind of get that started. And I have a, you know I have a few people I've been talking to, and and I think it'll happen eventually. It's just just so so busy doing my own stuff. I kind of wish you know it's almost. I kind of want to scale down and be able to enjoy life a little more. I feel like I'm just never endingly grinding away, but it's, I mean, but that's my service. So I feel good about it, and it's my way that I can kind of nourish the community is by creating and by doing that. So it feels good.
0: Do you <laughs> ever consider um, kind of expanding the Team Bodhi, so to speak, such that maybe you did have more freedom to, you know, for example, go pursue land race seeds or things like that? Or are you. Is, is part of it being a small kind of mom-and-pop business part of the central theme of it all?
1: I mean, it is. I, not, I don't think I'm like a control freak, but I really like to make sure that my hands are in every single process. And I think that's how we keep – I don't know if that's how we keep the prices down. I mean, that doesn't make sense. But um, it allows me to stay connected to whatever I produce. And, you know, I, I would love at some point maybe when the laws are more solidified and things change – it would be nice if some someone could take care of my mom room and keep it a lot healthier than I can, or so I can travel and I can do it. And there's a lot of a lot of my friends are getting into breeding and they're doing amazing jobs. Um, I would love to kind of branch out, but yeah, at this point, I'm just I'm kind of so in my flow that I almost don't want to kind of move out in any way. So it's more to see what the future is going to bring. If it brings this, you know, this brave new world of cannabis. I would love to kind of free it up. I would even love to do like an Anthony Bourdain travel cannabis show, kind of like Strain Hunters, but Cheech and Chong meets kind of Austin Powers style.
0: Uh, Okay. So that's actually one of the questions I had was, um, would you ever consider documenting your land race adventures? Because, I mean, the viewership is there and, you know, I'm sure everyone would argue that you could do a better job than what Strain Hunters did in almost every respect.
1: Um, you know, the funny thing is is if on Breed Bay and I think I see Mag. and if you dig, there are, I used to, when I had more time, I used to do these big elaborate, um, kind of travel logs with all the pictures and I write about all the things. So they're out there if you search for them, I think there's like five or six, mostly on Breed Bay, but they're on some other ones and I would love to do that. And there's so many countries that I kind of flailed and I haven't done yet, but I just don't have time to like, at the end of the day, I'm kind of burnt. I don't want to. I just want to listen to music or smoke and just meditate or think or you know I don't. It's writing is is hard and but I love it. But yeah, I would I would love to. I would love to go out and do that. I mean, I I don't think I would be as daring as going into the Congo and places like that. But I would definitely like to go to places like you know I would go to the Ewok Village if I could if I had a spaceship. I know they're smoking something ordinary. I would love to go to the places where people are. You know, kind of the same places I've been, like mountain people, people that have that deep connection with nature and to the heart and do more shows of kind of, um, I don't know. Uh, there's this one guy that did a show called Going Tribal. I think that's what it's called. But it is the most unique show because he was an anthropologist and he would they would send him to all these really cool tribes out in the middle of nowhere and they would just show him connecting with them and, and like laughing and caring and sharing food and that's kind of what I like to do. But yeah, but throw in the cannabis too. That would be amazing.
0: So before you so, get too down the rabbit hole of um, land race hunting, because got a whole whole bunch of questions on that, I just wanted to bring it back to a kind of an idea you mentioned earlier in that in regards to supernatural selections, do you feel that doing these um, kind of raw F1 land race hybrids is going to potentially lead to the next skunk or the next northern lights, and that could potentially be what kind of injects that invigorated energy into the community? Or do you think maybe it won't pan out like that because that was more a consequence of the time, um, you know, the lack of genetics, and that was maybe why those strains got so big?
1: Yeah, I wonder. Um, I don't know. Those kind of particular strains were really strains that were braided over seasons. You know, each year they would add in a new, since it was pre kind of clone. Grow out, grow out the plants they found in the bag seed from Mexico, Thailand, Colombia. Pick your favorites. Keep the seeds. Next year, braid it into the next favorite one. And these are these elaborate kind of breeding programs through time. And I think those produce some of those really amazing ones like skunks and haze. But my goal with Supernatural Selections is to really allow people to – I don't know, to see the extreme possibilities that cannabis has to offer, to really see where we can take it, where we can go, and how things combine. And then the beautiful part about it is you can F2 that thing, and it opens up an amazing treasure chest of those two lines. And if those lines are vintage lines, they're like little time machines, and it takes you back to those simpler times when that plant, and even its geography, all the information held in that. And it's like I always say that – I don't know. I – well, now I'm drawing planks, but I think it's just my way of getting to like my kind of graduating, getting to the next level of being even more creative with the plant. Yeah, it's kind of mm-hmm. like a gift to myself of saying, Okay, you've got to a certain point where you have a basic understanding of cannabis and plants and, and breeding or any stuff like that, and now this is something that you can embark on now that's even more of a challenge but offers so much more treasure.
0: Okay so that brings up this kind of idea which is quite prevalent at the moment the idea of um how should i say the concept of getting permission to breed with other people's genetics or just in general breeding with other people's genetics a lot of people are having kind of you know the debate is is buying someone's seeds enough for you to then breed with them or do you think it's you know kind of good practice to first ask the breeder if it's all right to do so first where do you sit on this issue um uh,
1: well you know i understand it coming from all different angles i'm pretty open i feel really honored when people read with my stuff and i don't have an issue i understand people you know i don't put a lot of time and work into some of their line working and stuff and they want to keep it pri- proprietary but what i think really the basis of it is is communication i think i think if you're going to read with someone else's work what an amazing time to be able to connect with that person like send them an email and go hey i really enjoy this uh, I really want to breed with it, you know, and the, and make that connection. Maybe it's a f- friendship. Maybe, you know, I, I think with just the basic respect and communication, it opens up like a whole new world. And I think it can really heal the whole cannabis breeding community because there's so much bickering and fighting and weird, everybody doing kooky stuff, that I think if people just communicate it, and even if someone says no, you don't have to. I mean, it's really up to you. I mean, you can still make the cross. Maybe you it'll be kind of taboo, but I think most people are human and you ask them and and you explain what you want to do. I think it should be fine. I mean, I don't think it's cool to to F2 people's work and then sell it unless you ask them or if it's a deadline, maybe it's no longer being produced or the breeder's no longer around. That's fine. But really, I think it's an opportunity for communication that we don't really have,
0: you know? So it's interesting that um, you mentioned the idea, and I feel it's true. There's this sentiment within the community right now that the level of camaraderie and friendship is kind of declining compared to in previous generations. Do you kind of agree with that? And more so, how do you think we deal with that if that is the case?
1: Um, You know, I, I definitely see that as kind of, you know, and it's also too, it's kind of the influx. There's a lot of people that are being attracted to this because it is so it's such a magnificent thing and uh, you know now it's, it's kind of hard to weigh in on for me i think a lot of problems now as with social media i think before in the early times there was a lot less people so there was a lot more communication there's a lot more camaraderie it wasn't as commercial people weren't producing seeds there wasn't so many elite clones the forums were about information and people connecting, and they went over time, you know, like Instagram is an amazing thing, it's very visual, it's visceral, it's all—it's good for ADD people, but it doesn't really foster community, because it's just basically for promotion, it seems you post up a picture, people get to write a couple things, and then it's on to the next thing, it's not like a thread in a forum, where people over the years are adding to it, and you know what I mean, it's so quick, and, and so glossy and in your face and neon that you don't there's not a way to really make that enduring in a way and, it, and I think it causes a lot of problems because people can be very short, very quick, very disrespectful very, I, I think it just, it really doesn't bring out, I mean sure there are people that do amazing things on it but it doesn't seem to be the best angle for fostering a community
0: Do you think that um, the best way for maybe a newly emerging breeder or someone with maybe not quite as big of a reputation as they deserve, do you think the best way for them to get known is to not kind of partake in that uh, marketing game, so to speak, that you mentioned but kind of let their work speak for itself or do you feel that maybe we're in an age where you almost can't be off Instagram, you know, like you need that marketing aspect otherwise it's never going to take off?
1: Yeah. I mean, for new breeders, I think Instagram is pretty crucial in a way because it's kind of like the roster. It's like you sign up like, hey, this is me. This is what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's, a, it's a tough one. I think for, what I, for new breeders, you know what I say? Make a good cross and give away a bazillion seeds. Just give away seeds and make friends and communicate. And let your seeds be talk for you. If people, you know, word of mouth is the ultimate thing. That's why I don't, I don't ever, I never uh, advertise. I never promote myself because I believe that I'm promoting myself through my work. And if people like the work, they're going to tell their friends. They're going to do more. It's like I think just if you're into it, do it. Do it for the plant's sake. Do it for your community. Make a, a awesome hybrid. Give out all the seeds and see where that takes you.
0: Yeah, that sounds like some great advice. So if we go back to kind of the breeding side of things, when you're thinking about doing a new project, maybe a line or just a certain cross, do you approach it in a very conceptualized manner? Like, do you think I want to pair this male with this female and I think that'll work out quite well? Or is it more so just a a general process where you're thinking, oh, let's see what happens, you know, like this could be interesting?
1: Yeah, well, for me, I kind of, I have a lot of different approaches, Sometimes I'll breed like emotionally where I just kind of feel like this plant and this plant need to be together. Like they just kind of feel like they have similarities and dissimilarities that would work perfect together. And I just kind of want to, you know, it's almost like you're the matchmaker or it's like the dating game or something. And, you know, especially when you know your plants and you've been around them and you have a nice mom room, you can kind of there's the plants have their own interactions. You can kind of say like, hey, this plant kind of seems like it kind of likes this plant you know, and bring them together. Or, you know, it's always fun to put twists on some of the new elite hybrids or add some special thing to the chem line. I mean, you you know, additive and subtractive, you know, goals are great. If you have a goal, like you want to make some plant that has a specific terpene signature, you can really, you know, you can point all your, your goal oriented to that. It's all kind of like, for me, I try and kind of just keep myself open to extreme possibilities and just kind of feel out what's going on. And for breeding, if I'm, you know, for my commercial breeding where I'm kind of generating enough money to keep my family and us fed, is I usually develop males, you know, special males, and then I will pollinate basically my whole harem and then slowly test those over time and see where those go. And, and, continually each year you know finding more unique males and kind of seeing how they do and i'll use like a target female that i know how she expresses so when i took a new male it's usually hit it to her first so that i can see kind of what she does with this new male um and then i you know for me i guess for basically for Bodhi seeds it's all about developing special males and then using them on kind of my own special plants and then the flavors of the week so i mean that's kind of the gist I mean, there's different breeding styles. We can get into that of tricks and stuff. But really, it's just kind of following your bliss, being passionate about it and, you know.
0: Okay. okay. And so, if you decide you wanted to take a certain strain to the next generation or you wanted to, you know, look for a special male to work with, how many seeds do you ideally like to pop to kind of get a good representation of the strain to, you know, be able to see what's locked within it?
1: Um, well, for my seeds, I'll usually just pop one pack. And if I don't find something in a pack, then I call it a bummer thing. I think you should be able to find an excellent plant in every pack. That's what most eaters should be, should be aiming for. I don't think you should be having to get multiple packs or search. And, you know, these days, it's not hard to make a good hybrid. Our gene pool has been so refined over time. You know, it's not like going back to the 70s and 80s where you're bringing these land races together. It's like we have a highly refined gene pool, and it's almost impossible to make a bad cross with some of the stuff we have today unless you know except you know maybe hermaphroditic tendencies and stuff that kind of have been slowly creeping in it's not it's not rocket sciences and if you're passionate it's pretty easy just to put things together and get good things out but if you have a vision you're really going to want to do some goal-oriented breeding where you're really kind of focusing on an outcome and doing everything you can to, to fulfill that
0: okay and so, do you find that's the case with most of your projects? Like, I think the uh, the analogy that jumps to mind is, I think Subcool said that in his mind, when he's breeding, to create a certain flavor, it's kind of like cooking, you know, you're kind of thinking what two flavors would add together to make that strain. Is that kind mm-hmm. of similar to how you think when you're thinking about those crosses?
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if I'm breeding specifically for terpenes and flavor, I, I usually that'll be my primary thing as I'll is I'll find two plants in the fem- you know that I know have s- either complementary or similar smells that I think could either bolster them or increase it and you know for aroma based breeding it's probably one of the besides color based breeding it's probably the easiest breeding you know you can basically take your males flower them super long until they put out visible resin and you can smell the resin and then you basically can choose which one is the one that smells closest to what you want with the best structure and if you can't wait, you can use ETHALON. What is that stuff called? Um, there's a another name for it. But basically it turns your males to uh, females. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. males. You can, and you can you know, smell it a lot quicker. But I, I don't really think that's a great way because then you can't find resinous males. And I, I'm really into resinous males. I know some people aren't. But I think resinous males, for me, is really what I kind of aim for, what I'm looking for for. Uh, aroma-based breeding so
0: okay what do you think is the most well-known bodhi strain so to speak what what strain embodies bodhi seeds the best in your opinion
1: i don't know you know the two ones that people always say my like flagships are uh, goji og and sunshine daydream kind of using those two males that i used a lot uh they're now kind of retired uh, those i guess would be my my current legacy in a way <laughs>
0: I was I was going to mention those two, but I thought if I if I suggested them, it might bait you into picking them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a different one. Yeah. So the Tranquil Elephantizer is a line that's always been of interest to me. I mean, I've personally played around breeding with it myself. But the the aspect which I find most interesting about it is how many times it's been you know remixed and reworked. What was mm-hmm. it about that cross which made you go back to it so many times?
1: It was just kind of a, like a fun and fascinating thing to kind of play with and you know I'm really in with I'm really into music and I'm really into like dub and the remix and the and and taking things and you know moving them back and forth and I love flipping parents and it just seemed it was a unique line and it had you know, some really fun things and so each time I would kind of tinker with the parent lines I'd be like okay so I'm you know moving it forward a generation or backwards or using male-female reversals like let's see what this does you know this is like another kind of facet of the tranquil elephantizers so for me it was just having fun and kind of exploring bouncing back and forth and and you know and even i don't know i mean it was mostly just for the experience of of just exploring that way of working with the plants
0: you did it with uh, the mother's milk as well did you find the results were as good or and and, you know as a result of that is it something you would consider doing again in the future or is it more of a case-by-case basis uh
1: well i i can't make those anymore i mean i can line breed them but i retired both of those males so i mean in the future i love you know i might i'm thinking about kind of doing fun things with the goji now that it you know that it's gone maybe line breeding it or uh taking my favorite phenos and kind of playing off those or even, you know, making remixes in a way. But for me, I'm always trying to move forward. I don't like to stay static. I don't like to be stuck in, in, in lines. I like to kind of always be exploring and moving forward and kind of following my passion. And if I get stuck in, in these like, you know, static lines, it's like in the UK, they always get mad because they say, Oh, you you never restock your old lines. You're always creating new ones. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to just be creating the same old lines over and over. I'm sure. They're great. And you know, it, it also gives people the ability. You know, Goji's no longer Sunshine Daydreams, not gonna go longer. So people can F two those. They can play with them. They can do their own twist on them. I think it, you know, it's it's beautiful to pass the torch and allow people to bring their own special artistry to it too. So I, you know, I think moving forward is a is a really good thing. And I think remixing and playing around and moving things back and forth, and males and females moving their positions, I think is a really unique way to kind of really see the deeper side
0: of a string. And so, the ancient OG, that's another one which has a bit of a cult following. Um, Mm -hmm. My feeling is probably due to the Iranian genetics in it. I've seen a quote online, it was on a forum, I think it might have even been from your post, and it says something along the lines of, the Iranian might not be an Iranian land race, but just something along those lines. This brings up the idea for me of how do you know what's real, especially someone in your position who must be offered a lot of things and most of the time you probably are probably unable to verify it for sure. Um, maybe using the Iranian as an example, you know, like how do you go about trying to verify or what's your process in that regard?
1: Well, I mean, these days I try and I, I think basic popping your own seeds, you know exactly where it came from. I think that's the best way to, to make sure something is verified. Um, I try and pretty pretty good. I used to be even more better at, at really making tracing the pathway of a clone, who I got it from, who they got it from, and really making sure I know the origin stories and stuff. And a few times I get myself into trouble, you know. Like uh, I think uh, in the Chem ninety one a long long time ago, there was only one Chem ninety one clone, and it and and it was uh, verified by Chem Dog and this and that, and it came from uh, Joe Brand's kind of camp. And then later, it came out that really wasn't the uh, Chem91. It was uh, like a divergent line or an alternate line. And you know, the the real Chem91 was the Skunk VA. And when I got that, I was like, okay, now I see. So I had the Chem91 JB and the Chem91 Skunk VA, and they're both amazing plants. But by you know, talking to people and and really, you know, I respect a lot of people who do a lot of the strain research and really listening to them i'm like okay yeah we're right so i had to make a disclaimer and all that and then with the iranian you know that was a unique situation i got a couple clones from a friend who had a really unique connection offline connection it was an old persian man and he had some really cool old kind of like la stuff like he had the la pure Kush. he had the la street ghani which was like a plant that was back before the og that was pretty popular what else did he had? He had that Iranian, and then something else, and so he had so many unique and rare lines. I kind of bought into that. It, yeah, this maybe this is the progenitor of uh, uh, maybe you know Persian strains could be the OG Kush. Maybe this is real. It does have a lot of similarities, but you know I don't know if it was a mismark or something. I almost think it could have been like maybe like one of the more primordial OGs just the way it was it was so close to an OG it was a little bit more wild but it sure does make good crosses and it makes great outdoor crosses so I could almost see it having the vigor and the kind of stability of a land race so I don't know that's a tricky one and that kind of adds to the mystique and I kind of like that people are really loving that line because it does so well outdoors and I really like that people are doing F2s and are really kind of they're kind of taking the ball and running and I may try and f2 it or F3 it and kind of explore too but I'm just stoked to watch other people do it it's such a cool line and so you know it's that's one of my anomalies there's only a few but that's definitely one of them and all I can really say about it is it's proofs and put it's amazing line I don't I can't verify that particular one because I went no longer in contact with that person
0: yeah okay. That raises an interesting question. What do you think are the origins of the OG? I mean, we've heard a lot of people, I've, I personally have heard a lot of people say that it's um, TK and then possibly cross to a Leventai or possibly just S1s, you know, like and then the OGs, so to speak, went from there. What's your opinion on this?
1: I mean, that's a good question. There's so many different people saying that, you know, I've heard everything from it's an old kawaii strain, it's a, or was you know, kalua kid or uh (laughs) it's his name he was saying you know it was an old world pakistani lemon tie and then there's the the whatever it is the supernat guy in florida and you know all these people tracing it back and i think that's all great everybody's tracing it back but for me i don't really even care where it came from i want to know what it's made of i want to know go back before that like what is it what is its actual genetics is it some old Dutch stock that somebody found or old super sativa club, or was it a combination of something special like a Pakistani Mexican or maybe even a Thai Mexican or some kind of, or, you know, a lot of uh, more central Asian strains. When people say Kush, you know, the whole Kush moniker, it's basically that kind of spicy powdery um, uh, coffee baby powder kind of smell that people associate with a lot of the California and LA strains. I've never experienced a plant from the Hindu Kush region that smells anything and looks anything like that, maybe looks like it, but never smelled like it. But you know where those plants that smell like that come from is Iran, Iraq, all of Central Asia has those very perfumey, spicy, with those same kind of things. I really think that it must have been a Central Asian and then some kind of very terpene-rich, lemony, lemon, limon, maybe a Mexican, old Mexican, maybe a Thai, but, you know, that could – that could play into why it's very hermaphroditic in certain ways you know i don't think anybody will ever know i would love to see the. i remember that the adam dunn show where they were doing that whole genome testing i love to see phylos maybe go deeper and see kind of where you know through genetics where it might be it's it's a unique strain it's so amazing it's so beautiful but no one seems to know the exact origins
0: yeah in regards to that JB Chem ninety one, you you answered about three of my questions, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to amalgamate what's left of them into one. So in regards to the JB, you know, chem ninety one, what what about it makes it worth breeding with? Because you do still breed with it, you just label it, you know, the JB Chem ninety one so you know like what's what's different because in my mind i thought well is it different enough such that it's worth breeding with or is it kind of just like a bit of an imitation that's not quite as good as the original
1: you know i think it's pretty cool it's definitely not it it, so it you know the skunk va is kind of almost og-ish and it's kind of like a dark afghani og like it, it, it it rich and oily and and spicy and then the Kim 91 JB is this really unique – it has a really unique look. It's got that really kind of old-school kind of almost like hash-planty nodules, but it has a very kind of like diesel and then kind of earthy and almost skunky. It's a lot more kind of diesel earthy, skunky than the Skunk VA, which is kind of that more – dark, deep OG thing. So I definitely think it has it. It kind of has like, it reminds me of kind of like when people, when I was in high school, when people come up like with a super dank bud, you know, the skunk, it's kind of reminds me of, of that. It's just knobby. And I think it's a great plant. I mean, it it, sometimes it's not the most stable in crosses, but I think it has its place and who knows what it is. It'd be unique to get Joe brand to kind of talk about some of these kind of cuts that kind of slipped out of his arsenal and what they really were. And no one seems to really know and now there's all kinds of, you know, there's still a lot of Chem 91s out there. There's, like, the Big Worm, and there's a lot of different ones, and who knows really where and what these are coming from and if they're just S1s or if they're hybrids or maybe they – yeah, it's uh, – the whole Strain strain uh, ins- <laughs> Inspector Strain thing is pretty amazing when you get into it.
0: I mean, the Chem personally has got a lot of mystery surrounding it, in my opinion. I love following the history on it. Um mm-hmm what was that whole process like of you discovering that it wasn't the real Chem 91? Like how did that happen? Did did someone come to you and say, this is the real Chem 91 and then it was just kind of obvious or was it more of like a discovery thing yourself or how did that go down?
1: It was a combination of things. It was, you know, a few people that, uh, really communicating with a few people that I really respect, uh, their knowledge about strains. Like I think my, one of my favorite people to ask about, about, uh, California and like, uh, you know, Oregon, West Coast strains would be like inspector. I think he has one of the most vast and underrated, like strain minds on the planet. Like he is, he's like a strain computer. And he was, you know, we were friends and he showed me some of his pictures and he told me about his experiences. And even at one point, uh, we traded and I, I got the cut and I grew him side by side. And then I saw, uh, what was it? What was it? What was name? Was, it, was, it, was it a big dog? I mean, when he would Remember when he first came online and I see Mag, on IC Mag? Good dog. Good dog. Um, he posted his pictures, and I'm like, it looks similar, but it's not the same. And then, you know, really growing them side by side and then seeing. And then, I mean, the whole thing was funny as it threw me off, is, you know, it did everything in our power to verify it. You know, someone even got a nug to Dog himself, and he verified it as the Chem91. So I was like, oh, that's probably as good as I can get. And that's why I said it. So I kind of love eating crow, like going back on my words, I think it you know, I think it, it it's good to kind of come before the community and go, hey, I messed up and it shows people that they can do that too. And and so I don't know, the chem line has so many unique like it's almost like this planet shooting out all these like satellites of different things. So you know they're all cool plants.
0: Yeah, for sure. And my <laughs> EP bud he wanted to know, do you still have the chem one or the chem two by any chance?
1: i've never had the two i have the one seems like it's a little it's a little dudded with me i'm trying to bring it back but that yeah that's an amazing plant i don't think that many people have experienced it and it it, it's kind of uh it would be like the sativa of the bunch it goes a couple weeks longer it has a more kind of uh cerebral kind of high it's not as you know kind of like chem dog is very like a it kind of muffles you. It's like putting on one of those inflatable samurai suits when you go out to a Halloween party. <laughs> it kind of like, you know, it takes you down and it kind of, it's like a big bear hug in it. And also it's very heady. Whereas the, the chem one, it has that same color. It has the chem smell. It's a, a little bit different, but it definitely has more of a sativa hit and a really kind of sativa hit. I like, cause it has that still warm hug, but it has, it's, it's got kind of that heady indica thing where your mind just goes off into amazing realms. So, I think it's a plan. It's not I don't think it's commercially viable so much, and it does take a while, but it's a really unique kind of lens on the whole chem family.
0: And so, do you find that you prefer more indica or more sativa strains, for example, or are you kind of up for anything? Because I just remember I was reading an article in Skung Magazine, and um, I believe you wrote it, and it was basically saying that you, the white um, snow lotus, my mistake, the snow lotus was some of your favorite personal smoke and it veered a bit towards the sativa side from memory you know is that kind of how you find things in general or was that just the snow lotus
1: you know I always have liked sativas a lot because I like psychedelics and I like kind of that meditative opening up space and I really like I think sativas have a really unique spirit to them like they all kind of have their own unique personality some are very pushy some are, you know, some are a roller coaster ride. Some are super creepers. There's, I mean, I'm sure in, in indicas too, but they they have these unique properties and each one kind of opens up like kind of like a little higher center in your mind. So I would say that, but you know, now as I'm maturing and I'm getting older, I kind of, I've been really enjoying like heady indicas, like, uh, or um, you know, I should be saying broadleafs, but really unique, uh, maybe heirloom or landrace broadleafs that are deeply relaxing on the body and healing, but at the same time like opens your mind in almost like a dreamlike state. So I'm really loving kind of like heady indicas. Um, But I like extreme possibilities. I've always looked for plants, you know, that that just body, like absolutely no mind. I was like, i got to find that. Like how nice would that be just to go out dancing or to like so you don't have to trip out if you're going to meet people or more social. And then I also like completely – mind like absolutely no body like some of the Indian lines that I have are, are all, almost nobody at all and I even have some ones that you smoke I have a Vietnamese one you smoke and you don't really know if you're high or not everything is just kind of slightly weird and everything's a little brighter and you just kind of it just feels like you're on another planet but you don't really feel high you're almost like did I get stoned or what what's going on but it puts you in a completely different state and I don't know if that's a, an interaction of multiple cannabinoids or just this way terpenes interact or you know it's such a we're still kind of in the early stages of really figuring out why cannabis does what it does to our physiology
0: do you think that there's a market now for weed which maybe doesn't get you just you know completely stoned so to speak but more what you said maybe makes things feel a bit different i mean the example i often hear is people say oh i breed for terps and to me that is kind of saying you're doing what i said you know you're you're breeding cannabis that's maybe not as potent but maybe got an overall different effect maybe more uh up someone's alley who's up for a more sedative type of thing do you think that's a market worth looking into or do you think maybe it's just someone trying to make up for poor potency within their crosses
1: (laughs) i mean maybe both i mean i think as the emerging kind of recreational market sweeps over canada and America and now we have medical in Mexico and all these places are tuning in I think for people that aren't smokers that have never done cannabis I think it's kind of nice to have training wheels to have something that's tasty and visceral and 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 great to the senses that is very low THC that can kind of ease you in if you want to keep going you know if your're grandma you want to smoke something or you know, people don't want to get too high. They want something special. And I know now there's branded things like sex pot. There's that pot that's supposed to make you feel sensual and horny. And, and you know, there's also then the CBD style stuff where the CBD, THC things, those are kind of more, you know, those are a different feeling in themselves. They seem to be a lot more freeing up of the body than so much the mind. I think there's – I really think there's a market for any expression. It's just finding that niche – and going there and then also finding the place that you're going to be able to vend that or, you know, it's it's almost like you have to have a passion for that specific thing you're going for or else you're never going to
0: prevail. So one of the more interesting things I remember talking to you about at the Emerald Cup was how you said you only really smoke once a day or so and it's more of like a meditative uh, slash ritual type thing as opposed to just a recreational one. Would you mind going a little more into detail about that and kind of how you do it? Are you combining say meditation with smoking or is it more just smoking and trying to undergo it as a type of meditation?
1: I mean, really when I say kind of meditation, I more it's just like me time. I usually smoke when everyone's asleep here. I, I have three kids and it, I I'm hypersensitive to cannabis and all kind of plants, so I don't need to I like to take bong hits and it if I take a bong hit during the day. It's like I'm just going to be staring at plants and not be able to be working and not being really able to interact with my family. So it's kind of like after I'm done with everything, I, I have all these plants that I test. And so I have hundreds of different strains hanging, and I'll be like, okay, what are we going to try tonight? And I'll, you know, usually it's sativas and usually it keeps me up all night. But um, for me, it, smoking once a day allows me to not only not bludgeon my endocannabinoid system but keep me like sensitive enough that I can really perceive the individual differences in plants especially if I'm going through new lines or different phenos it really allows me to stay crisp and and honorable to the plant like everyone has their own special relationship to the plant I don't I don't going to judge I think people that need to smoke it 100 times a day is beautiful if you don't need to smoke it once a year that's amazing it's really how we interact with it and I you know I hear some people get kind of like fooled on or making fun of that they don't smoke that much or they're a lightweight I think lightweight should be celebrated I think being sensitive to the plant and knowing how to be respectful to the plant and, and to engage it in a way that that you know it's a special meeting I think that's good and I think that more people should do that I th- I think sometimes when you smoke way too much, you don't really get to experience the nuances. You know, I understand for medical reasons people do need to do that, and even for self medicating other things, I think it's great. But I think to keep yourself really sensitive and clean, to if you're breeding and really diving deep into different strains, I think it's kind of good to create a special time that you interact with it and for me it's just it's late at night and sometimes I'll meditate sometimes I'll listen to music sometimes you know I'll do this and that if I do yoga in the day or ride mountain bike I'll, I'll do it I don't it's not like I only do it at night but I usually try and to smoke once a day and that kind, and that what's what work, basically works for me unless I'm trekking then I'm going to smoke all day long as I trek because that's what I like to do
0: that sounds <laughs> awesome So, given, you know, your relatively small amount of consumption compared to, say, other breeders, do you find it hard to personally sample all the plants you grow out? Or, I mean, my assumption would be that you must kind of have a group of trusted friends who are kind of act as your palate in a certain regard. Or do you still manage to kind of work your way through them all?
1: You know, I do my best to work through all. I only have 365 days a year. I do, and any friends come over, I'm always like, hey, you want to try this? You want to try this? And, like, you know, I make bags because I literally – my whole garage is, like – it's just hundreds of strains, and I don't know what to do with them. I usually just – when they get too old, I just throw them over the hill, (laughs) Um, you know, because it's just – it's a wonderland. But I'm always like, hey, try this, try this, try this, try this. What I need – I wish there was some dedicated, like, um, super stoners that would – I could just give, like, a bag once a week and be like, hey, try this. And write all, I used to have people a long time ago that are like, hey, try all these, write down what you think about each one, and give that kind of bag to a couple different people so I could get more kind of insight. But these days, you know, I'll give a bag to whoever comes over, but really it's kind of just me. And, uh, you know, I get one one chance each night, and it usually works pretty good. I can do, in a week, I can do Pheno's pretty much
0: seven phenos from a new line in a week and take all my notes and kinda of know where I'm going from there. What what kind of percentage of your day do you spend hacking through uncharted uncharted territories looking for new land races?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's rare. I mean I it's kinda of sad. I feel kind of kinda of like a dork. I used to really be able to get out there more and I really like my heart just soars. Like my spirit is so happy when I'm out in the field. Like that's where I, I feel at home. Like just you know, no expectations. There's totally out of your element. Every, every moment is something new. I, I just, my spirit just gobbles that up. But now with three kids and the business and all that, I'm kind of like stuck and it, it drives me crazy. I mean, now things are starting to pick up again. I, I just did a collections trip with a couple of friends in Guatemala about six months ago and kind of contemplating a quick one in Oaxaca in about a month or two. I got some good ideas for a special spot. But daytime, it's really, you know, I do a lot of trading and I do a lot of uh, seed popping and I just kind of try and explore what I have. And, you know, maybe a a day is I wake up late because I go to bed late. I usually do kid stuff, pick up kids, do this, do that. And maybe in the afternoon, I get to do some outdoor. Then it's time, more kid stuff, dinners, put the kids to bed. Then I go out and I do indoor stuff and then... (laughs) And then at, uh, when everything's done and thing, I'll go down to. I, I kind of live in a dome down on the lower part of the property, and I'll just pick something that from hanging from the ceiling and take a big bong rip and usually listen to me- uh, meditate, listen to music, take notes, read, just kind of get in my own space and kind of like kind of realign with the force, I guess.
0: <laughs> and what's happened of music into mostly?
1: You know, I I kind of. I pretty much like any kind of music except maybe I'm not so into contemporary country western like that doesn't do for me and a lot of like the any of the new whatever whatever is on the radio I'm not so thrilled about like all the new poppy stuff but I primarily listen to maybe like I guess people would call it bass music a lot of electronic music that's heavy on the low frequency I also like a lot of older stuff like. Uh, I love Hendrix and Zeppelin and a lot of 60s punk and I even, you know, some – some. I, but mostly I would have to say it would be classic electronic music and then newer, really psychedelic bass music. And then I like ambient. I like world music. You know, I like – I'm pretty open, but it, I like Vajon's a lot. I like Kirtan. Um, you know, I like even listening to podcasts. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just like to listen to my own ears, but really, I think if I had to pick one thing, it would be probably bass music, and I know that sounds strange, but that's me.
0: Nice. <laughs> so, although I was kind of, you know, joking, a bit of tongue-in-cheek with the whole hacking through uncharted territories, it kind of is a fairly accurate statement in many ways, at least compared to other breeders. So, how does that whole process go down? You know, I remember when you're on the Adam Dunn show, you said generally you have a contact organizing when you're going to a different country. Would you mind filling us in a little more on the details of, you know, how the average trip goes down?
1: Yeah, usually, you know, usually I'll do some research and I'll pick a place that I've always wanted to go to that also has a history of cannabis. And, you know, I'll do a lot of looking in books and I'll do a lot of research online and I'll try and find specific places or specific strains or try and get clues. And then hopefully I made a friend there. Maybe I have a contact. It all depends. And then, you know, the real thing I try and do, and sometimes it backfires when I haven't done it for a while, is synchronicity. Go to a country. Go to the places that you research. Be the coolest person you can be. You know, be who you really are. Open your heart. Laugh. Make connections with people. And usually I travel alone. Recently I've been taking friends, which is really fun. But I used to just travel alone. So I'd meet a lot of people and you just kind of develop relationships. And I swear, synchronicities happen. Like, you know, from point A to point B, you just follow the clues and they'll usually take you to where you need to be. Um, you know, and I usually play, I love to choose places where I can trek, like kind of get up into the mountains. And mountain people are so friendly and, You just have to be really respectful. You know, I try and – I I never bring in uh, my own seeds. I always bring in, like, heirloom vegetable seeds. I also bring in, like, antibiotics. I love to bring in pencils, chocolate. I like to, like, really give of myself. And I always bring these fake teeth and crazy glasses because I like to make people crack up and smile and make the kids laugh. And the key to – you know, I think anyone that loves cannabis and anyone that loves traveling, I think it's our birthright and it's our – duty to get out there and save those strains you know and even or even if you can't go and you say you're a big commercial person you have trimmers where do trimmers go after they trim all summer they go to thailand they go to guatemala you go talk to your trimmers go hey bring me back some seeds (laughs) or even better talk to your dad's old hippie friend see if he's got any i mean you got to follow every single avenue. But I really think people should – if they like to travel, they like cannabis, get out there and really show the world, like, how cool we are and make those lasting connections and, you know, help people out and let them help you out. And I think that's one way that we can really make this a better planet.
0: Yeah, really. So you kind of touched on the topic without trying to throw anyone under the bus. How do you feel about, you know, the idea of trading – more hybridized seeds for land-raised seeds to, you know, the farmers in these countries? Is that just a personal choice you decide not to do or do you think as a kind of modern society we have a an obligation to not do that given these people may not fully understand the implications of, you know, cross-pollination?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's, a, it's a hard one. I think it's a really ethnocentric view to bring in anything that we think is, like, super awesome and try and replace – it was someone that they already have that they have a history of it, that their ancestors grew it that it 's part of their collective consciousness that it 's weaved through their toil and their sweat you know it 's like these plants that have been grown in these areas, except now with you know rapid commercialization and also even with drug cartels and and people bringing in stuff to try and pump out a lot of stuff for foreign markets it 's like these strains are special they 're magic they 're timeless. They weave through cultures, they weave through people's lives, and it holds a lot of information. And I think that it's it's criminal to take, in especially feminized genetics, into these cannabis hotspots. I think it's really short sighted. I think it's 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 not a smart thing at all. And I mean, it's one thing, you know. I've opened up a little bit because I've met some really cool cannabis breeders in other countries, and. I've been, you know, considering sending stuff and I'm like, you know, if you're growing way out in some mountain valley where there's not a lot of cultivation and you're just doing your thing as a modern cannabis guy, sure, you know, that would be fun to trade seeds and do this but if you're in an area that has like, you know, the eons old um, traditions of working with certain strains in certain areas that have developed over time and are, you know, that are made for those areas to bring in something else is just so, so wrong and it's so sad and it really... It sets up for a global homogenization. It's, you know, we're just, we're going to basically, we're just going to braid ourselves right into a hole. And so I definitely think we shouldn't be bringing foreign genetics into cannabis hotspots, you know, but there are exceptions, but that's my feeling. And I think, yeah, I mean, to each his own, though, I'm not going to pass judgment, but I, I really think it's a bad idea
0: so i read a post recently from your buddy sonic seeds and um he said that he's working with some land-raised jamaican seeds he got from a buddy but his end kind of analysis of it all was that they weren't in fact land-raised jamaican seeds but more just kind of acclimatized watered down super silver haze hybrids from kind of all the imported genetics of years gone by that had polluted the pool, so to speak. Have you ever found yeah. a similar thing happen with any seeds you've brought back only to kind of find, because this is the, the kind of follow-up question is most of the time when you're getting the seeds, it's probably, you know, you probably don't have a, a really amazing representation of flower side by side for it, do you? So you probably have got to kind of wait till you get back home and grow it out before you really know what's inside there or is that not the case? Well,
1: it depends. If you're doing, if you're doing collections, you're doing bag seed testing and sampling or if you're actually seeing the plants and collecting seeds um, directly from the plants I think then you really get to see what's going on and you can kind of tell whether you know things are modern hybrids or, or have that or if you're more in the tropics if they're like true equatorials but I mean it's a kind of a unique question because the, the big uh, our, our trip to Guatemala was all about trying to reclaim the strain that I had long ago that was one of the best strains I've ever smoked in my life and so, in Guatemala, there's a, a sister lake to Lake Tahoe. It's a caldera lake. It's a lake that it was a volcano that's been filled with water, and it has its own microclimates. Uh, it's called Lake Atitlán, and it's this amazing, beautiful lake. But the classic thing is, ever since the '80s, uh, the, um, I don't know if you, uh, you know, how many Dead Shows everybody's been to, but. You know, in the 80s and 90s, everybody wore, like, Guatemalan shirts and Guatemalan shirts. It was kind of like the style, and you'd sell them on straight down street. So a lot of those vendors, uh, when tour wasn't going on, they would go down to the lake and be buying up the clothes, and they'd also bring down their lot seeds. Like, you know, they're basically their dead family seeds. And they would grow them, and those seeds, I think, hybridized and pollinated some of the local sativa varieties, and you were getting these really unique plants that were – kind of like deadlot meets sativas and then they were you know breeding over cycles over seasons and they were acclimatizing and becoming heirlooms and you had these amazing amazing combos of basically ancestral sativas and deadlot seeds and uh so we, that was kind of my goal was to kind of go down there and see really if those were still available because i'd had sampled it before in the past and. And when I got down there, I realized that, you know what, there's so much people bringing in so many genetics from a lot of trimmers are going down there, especially to San Pedro and setting up shop. There's a lot of growers down, down there in the genetics of America and buying them from seed bags. The, 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 the lake is pretty polluted. You know, it's, it's, the gene pool is pretty polluted. It's unique and it's special. They're getting to try new things. People are really stoked but those deep older lines from like the nineties and early two thousands even are seem to be gone. Or maybe I just didn't get a chance to look deep enough. But, um, you know, there's still that there's a plant down there called, what's it called? Um, menguito. That's kind of like their, their blue dream down there. Like the, uh, Guatemalan version of blue dream, I guess, <laughs> you know, it's grown all over Guatemala. I think it's like a throwback from like an earlier time. And, it has some really unique effects. People don't seem to really like it that much. I thought it was kind of cool because it makes you absolutely stupid. It's like one of the strains where you just, like, stare and laugh. Like, I think it was kind of neat. And, you know, we brought that back. But that's being hybridized with a lot. And there's some really cool people. There's a lot of cool monomones. There's a lot of new breeding going down there. But, you know, that finding land races is, is difficult there now. And, then, you know, there's... You can go to the jungle, the Pitin, where uh, a lot of the cannabis is cultivated, but a lot of the organized cartels are moving in there and they're pumping stuff out. So it's like it's happening everywhere. In Mexico, you know, Jamaica is a good, is a really good way to see it. It's like Jamaica had so much early Dutch stuff brought in that it, it basically is. A lot of the island is these Dutch Jamaican hybrids, and now they've kind of turned into heirlooms. And sure, there's Rastas that still have the lamb's breath and stuff, but really, most of the island is a unique kind of like Dutch Jamaican hybrid that's turned into an heirloom. so I mean in a way that's kind of cool because you're kidding you' I still love hybrids and I still love when things come together for the first time and kind of make this unique love. but at the same time the world's being homogenized very quickly very fastly and I don't think it's gonna slow down at all I think it's only gonna gonna get faster and faster and faster until we're all basically everything is gonna look and smell pretty much the same.
0: So, on that idea of land races, which one kind of interests you the most in terms of moving forward with it? We often hear people talk about, uh, very reminiscently, you know, Thai. Do you feel that maybe Thai hogs the spotlight a bit and there's another land race that deserves a bit of a mention that if it did come back into the mainstream conscious, you know, it would really rock people's world, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I mean, a good Thai. I mean, Thai, it comes down to people being able to, like, grow it correctly and, and, you know, really finding a way to do it, I think, really for, maybe I think as cannabis becomes uh, globally legal and we start to see these, like, trade deals where we're actually going to get stuff, you know, shipped over from Thailand, Colombia, all these places we used to kind of get it, I think then maybe, because it's, you know, from my experience, smoking, like, uh, land races at the point of origin And then coming home and growing them and smoking it, it's like a completely different world. It's kind of like one's like a light version. Like because the plant's developed, it's, you know, in a specific environment, terroir. uh, Also, you know, there's a lot of things going into cultural heritage. There's so much information and epigenetics that, that, that weave through these plants in the places that they've been for so long that they really develop their vital essence. And, you know, I've smoked Oaxacan. In Oaxaca, that just blew my mind, and I'll bring it back here. And it was kind of and it's you know it maybe after a couple seasons of it getting used to the new environment and you know keeping me in a couple sessions of seeds, it can adapt and, and bring out some of its qualities. I don't think we're really going to get rocked by these land races until we can really start importing them from their points of origin. I mean, you know, there's people that really do excel at growing sativas indoors and really finding the niche. I have a couple friends that do great jobs, and, you know, I, I think that there are lines that have been acclimatized, especially older lines, you know, back from the 80s and stuff that have been around forever that were a tie that we kind of acclimatized to our mountains. Um, you can still get those effects, but really, I don't know. I mean, and even stuff like Thai, you know, the Thai gene pool has been pretty polluted. I think the only way to really find some of these Southeast Asians that are really noteworthy is to go deep, kind of like that Lao Asian strain I brought back. That was kind of right on the border of China and Burma, and it was way up, up in kind of the high, high, highland forest. So it was, it wasn't the lowland kind of like humid tropical. It was like almost like a Jurassic Park style thing, and it was pretty untouched, and it really had its own unique essence. I think people who are going to really, really want to find unique and rare stuff. are going to have to really get back up in there. Or dig into older stuff. I think, you know, I heard Rob Clark, I think it was Rob Clark say that, you know, the best land races are going to be found in your, you know, your dad's friend's collection or something. It's like, I think old seeds are kind of these special treasure chests that hold a lot of the magic. And even though there are still hot spots that contain amazing genetics, I think it's really about recovering a lot of the stuff we have here, especially in California and all, all across the states where, you know, it's been grown, it's in, in prohibition. I think, you know, talking to old people, like connecting, reaching out. I mean, and now's the time to sprout those things. I mean, get them out, get them going, you know. Get that germplasm out and about because it's, it's only getting older. And I think maybe it's that's the kind of the sacred bridge there is, is getting deep into the bush and then also getting deep into people's
0: collections, So what's the oldest seeds you've ever been able to germinate?
1: Ah, that's a a good question. I mean, I've tried to germinate all kinds of super old ones. I I can get them to pop, but they never come up, you know. Uh, I use seed bombs and all kinds of weird popping strategies. And I have friends that can do pretty good getting really old ones. I'm trying to think, what's my oldest? I don't even know. I mean, most likely probably 80s. I have a lot of seeds from the 70s that I can't seem to get to go. I guess it would be 80s or, you know, a lot of times some of these old, old ones are they're being refreshed every like nine years or, you know, they came from somebody's dad who had them and then their uncle made more nine years later and then someone else made, you know, they kind of, they're being refreshed and that's one way that they're getting a thing. But I don't know, you know, uh, there was a really kind gentleman that came on Instagram from alaska that like buried a bunch of seeds and he has a lot of cool old stuff from the 80s and he's getting great germination and so i mean it it's all about storage really and it's about people that have kept that vibe alive and are now kind of as as the laws are lifting and people are being more comfortable they're like people are coming out with their treasures and i think that's a, it's really it's a kind of a gift to the community is that as we legalize things are kind of coming to the surface that we never really thought the would
0: So, do you think that if people do, you know, uh, how should we say it, metaphorically find uh, the seeds in the dad's friend's little stash case, do you think that people should, you know, try their best efforts if possible to try to do a bit of a Tom Hill in this situation and, you know, do the open pollination and try to, you know, generate that larger stock pool to work with without bottlenecking it such that we can then work further?
1: Uh, yeah, I think if if something's really special, I think you should always open pollinate it, you know. And I and there's there's ways to get, there's kind of like fun tips and ways to kind of to have fun with it and still open pollinate. You can do like a a targeted open pollination where you do a bunch of seeds and you kind of you pull out you know the ones that are, are really not going to be good for the gene pool. But who's to say what that? But you can kind of narrow it down. I prefer like a total open pollination. And then from there I'll, I'll pick my favorites, a couple favorites from that open pollination, and I'll save those back to clones and kind of work with those. But I, every time I get like a new seed line, like I have an old-timer friend that once in a while sends me some really special cool stuff, and the first thing I always do is I do an open pollination, make a bunch, send him back some, keep those, and then I'll kind of work from those from the ones that I selected from the initial open pollination that I really kind of connected with. But, yeah, I think yeah, it's important to keep that gene pool and that kind of open and contained for the future even if you can go back and you know it's great to have that you know what if your grow room dies or there's a storm comes by or you know the power's out it's easy to lose clones but it's it's hard to lose seeds
0: yeah the the truth (laughs) so just kind of looping back to a previous question have you found any land races that seem to be particularly compatible with modern strains you know most likely you would have probably found this through supernatural selections and then the flip side of that the opposite you know have you found any modern strains you know maybe an elite clone so to speak that seems to work quite well with land races
1: oh that's a good one Uh, the funny thing is a lot of the elite clones that work good with land races were kind of like older clones that were originally land races kind of are ones that have been kind of inbred quite a bit because i mean the key to to F, you know to f1 hybrids is really getting inbred lines so if you're taking two inbred lines and you're putting them together they're very distinct they don't have a lot in common and you bring them together you get that true f1 hybrid vigor where you're getting this like explosion of life force and you're getting this this really unique combination of genes and they display pretty pretty stable and pretty similar in that first cross and they just blow everything away with vigor and they have amazing root systems and they really shine and then from there i mean you can f2 and stuff but i really think the best things to mix with land races are other highly inbred elite clones or highly inbred clones that have been kept a while and i think that's where you get the best results you know and then it's always fun to play like I think OGs are fun to cross anything into an OG because OG is such a cool plant. And then to cross a crazy land race, it's like then you get these really kind of weird, unique accents or really freaky, get freaky buds with an OG smell but a completely different structure. It's kind of fun to take your favorite things and just kind of hit them with the magic stick and see what crazy stuff comes out, you know?
0: What's your favorite OG to work with? And then secondly... Have you ever found when you, you know, did hit stuff with the magic stick, so to speak? I like that expression, by the way. Um, have you ever found that just something just completely, you know, the most unique, exotic smell, you know, maybe never even encountered it before in cannabis, you know? Have you ever had that happen to you?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. I think especially with with uh, really unique and special and very like, su- especially with like the super, super heavy terp. Plants, when you put two really unique chirp plants together, sometimes you get the weirdest, wildest smell you would have never thought. And then sometimes they cancel each other out, which is always weird. Like you get the two smelliest plants and you're like, oh, this is going to be the ultimate. And you throw them together and then they're like somehow they cancel their smells out. And then sometimes you'll get crazy stuff like you put an OG and a blueberry and you get onions out or, you know, it's like – it. The way the genes combine is just so amazing and magical, and it might be, you know, sometimes it could be recessive genetics. It could be back something that came from, you know, an earlier, earlier generation, and, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's fun. That's why I always say find, like, a targeted female, like a female that you know and you've always used in your breeding that you can put your new pollen on and really see what it does, so you can see what that kind of brings to a cross, and then I think my favorite OG to work with it was that Nepali OG, but you know I, I no longer have it. But out of all the OGs I ever worked with, that one would always consistently make the best hybrids. I mean, besides the Ancient OG, besides the Iranian, did really good too. And I think that they, you know, if if it was an OG, I think that it it would it was probably closer to that kind of Grass Valley Tahoe kind of. Uh, Uh, emanation
0: of og that was there for a while okay awesome there's kind of like a point of contention within the communities like two schools of thought one is that we've made the land races more potent and maybe arguably more flavorful however we have potentially um lost certain characteristics the other the other argument is that the new the new strains, while definitively being maybe more flavorful or having certain flavors that weren't accessible in the landrace roots, are not as potent. Do you think that the land races were more potent and we've watered it down, or that we've refined it for the better?
1: Um, I think both things. I think humans selecting plants to their you know each each season smoking the stuff, finding their favorite things and just going with that each year and each year is like that's the amazing thing as humans we can do is I always think of like the gene pool is, is energy and then where the awareness that we bring to it. So in a way, I think, you know, of course, if you've really been deep in the bush, there's a lot of jungly cannabis and it's pretty junky. Like I wouldn't, a lot of stuff in the Himalayas, a lot of stuff that escaped into the wild, even heirlooms that escape in the wild, they kind of revert back to their, their own kind of vibe and it, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty jungly. It's pretty rough. I mean, from a rubbing perspective, it can be some of the best hash ever because it's, you know, these plants are just, they're horrible to look at, but the resin that comes off is, is truly amazing. But I think it's kind of like our duty to kind of push it in the ways that we want to as artists working with the, you know, the plant spirit and the cannabis realm. Um, and then at the same time, I think we do lose certain things like i was talking to rob clark about this like what makes all the old strains so different and he's like oh they were more monoterpene like mexican had this effect because it had just one kind of terpene signature and like one you know like limine or something where and it would take you this way where another one from this like columbia it was kind of a monoterpene had just this smell and this so people remember like these Lumine reds with a certain smell or Panama with a certain smell. And and so they had these – they weren't so mashed up. The whole global cannabis gene pool wasn't mashed together in all these ways, creating all these different genes expressing themselves and all these new smells and combination smells. It was like there was these very distinct varietals. They had distinct morphology. They had distinct uh, look. They had distinct smell, taste, and the effect too because they were very specific to their – you know, single or just a few terpenes. And that's why it held their very, uh, held their uniqueness. And as we grew as a cannabis culture and community and started blending all these things together, you really started to blend together a lot of the effects, kind of almost sometimes getting neat things, sometimes muddling. But I I, fo- I found that really, really unique and really kind of really expanded my mind. Like, wow, yeah, I guess so. If it came from a specific place in a specific environment, and the environment uh, force the plant to do a certain thing and release certain terpenes, and, and it, you got it in a brick in the '70s or '80s from this place. Of course, it's going to have this unique effect, and I think that we're kind of losing that these unique effects. I think we're get, gaining in the smells and flavors and aromas and even structure and yields, but we're really losing on the the kind of subtle spirit, subtle effects that cannabis has to offer that we that we no longer kind of experience in our modern gene pool.
0: That's really interesting because I've always wondered, and I posed the question to Mr. Sowell, I said, what is it on the molecular basis, do you think, that causes a strain to, quote, not have a ceiling? Because people often talk about maybe Thai, for example, or haze not having a ceiling, you know, you can just keep getting higher and higher the more you smoke. And so my first thought is well there's got to be some you know molecular basis for the ceiling and i guess if we kind of think about what rob said if it was a similar kind of thing happening with the terpenes that would almost suggest that some terpenes are inhibitory you know if maybe monoterpenes led to a high that didn't have a ceiling maybe multiple terpenes somehow brings in a ceiling do you think do you have your own little kind of hypothesis to what's going on here
1: yeah you know i've always kind of wondered and i always like you know what is going on like even when I would get like an, say like a broadleaf, indica, and and it would, I have one, you know, I'd be like, oh, okay, this Kushmore smells kind of like a haze. So why does it have an effect? You know, kind of like a down relaxing thing. And this haze, it smells the same. Why does it have enough? And I'm like, what is going on? You know, because I, you know, terpenes are usually, they kind of lead the experience. They're you know, they're either bolstering or or canceling out or or making things go through the blood vein barrier faster or. You know, or yeah, so I always wonder that too. And I, I don't know if it's a, a combination of like auxiliary cannabinoids mixed with terpenes. You know, for a while, people thought maybe a lot of the high elevation and a lot of jungly, like equatorials, they had uh, THCV, like something that would kind of put a lead the cannabinoids into, you know, a, a more effective, deeper. Synchronicity with your brain I don't know I would love to It's this is like one of the things that fascinates me and I think that people as we get more into genetics and terpenes and and auxiliary cannabinoids that we'll kind of see but yeah the ceiling thing is wild like and even or even legs yeah like what makes some strains last for so long like I have some strains that look super ugly I smoke it and I literally can feel like I drank a coffee and I'll be up all night long but and I smoke maybe even a different pheno. And it won't do the same thing. Like, where are these ceilingless highs and these like long-legged highs? It must be the chemistry. I, yeah, it, it's it's really amazing, and I would love to know because, it, it, yeah, I'm. It, that's a it's a fascinating subject.
0: Yeah, I mean, it would certainly be interesting if we could figure out the answer because presumably we could then work towards incorporating that ceilingness ceilinglessness it's probably not the best way to phrase it, uh, into more strains, <clears throat> but just to, or chill- what about, Oh, sorry, gone
1: Oh yeah. I was just going to say like, what about, so, you know, th- everybody's really into these pens and I know now the kind of thing is like a rock an abonoid compound. And then they're putting these fake terpenes like trademark OG combinations. You know, they're running them through the cr- grass chrom- chromatography and finding which terpenes or however they do it in each strain. And then they can kind of mimic that. So, why? I love you know. There's people that make amazing pens, and I, I like pens for certain things like traveling and stuff. But why does it seem like pens? They just don't have the spirit there. They're kind of like this muddled kind of basic highness. Like I don't get a lot of different effects from a pen. It seems to be all very similar. And then why if 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 uh, the high is terpene driven? Why 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 can't I mean? It's you'd think that people could put in these diverse food-based terpenes and get similar effects to the strains like there's got to be something else i don't maybe it's something metaphysical i don't even know it's it, you know it kind of boggles my mind it's like why can't we recreate because there's obviously something matching going on we haven't figured out
0: yeah for me i mean it raises a um kind of a parallel issue where that is will we ever be able to or maybe another way of putting it is are we wasting our time trying to Artificially replicate the plant when we know that it just doesn't seem to really compare, you know, like do you think that we'd ever get to the stage where you could get, you know, a capsule or a pen, for example, that would completely mimic, say, you know, like ingestion of the whole plant product via combustion maybe or something like that or do you think it's just still, you know, the technology is not there and we don't understand it?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's the same thing kind of with, uh, you know, modern herbalism. There's a the whole school of pulling out the specific uh, Phytochemical uh, and standardizing that, and then selling that as a natural medicine versus a whole plant extract versus eating, you know, the herb. And it's like, you know, sometimes people do spagyric, like an alchemical extract. There's CO2, there's alcohol, there's all these ways that people try and capture the essence of the plant. And I think maybe spagyric is probably the best because it's a more of a metaphysical thing. But you really can't capture. The true, you know, it's like anything. You can't capture the true nature. It's even like live music versus recorded music. And I think really the whole terpene pen thing, I think that's just more of a commercial thing. It's a cost effective. And I think in the future, sadly, what we're going to see is massive, massive, massive cannabis farms where they're just basically harvesting all the tops and making raw THC. And they're adding it into these, Propylene glycol with their proprietary mixture of terpenes, and you get them at Seven Eleven. You get it everywhere. I don't think flowers are going to have a, a place in the future, except in the people that really love and enjoy enjoyment. I think legalization. We're going to see just this mass-like kind of blah kind of exposure to just bulk cannabinoids and flavors. I don't think. I don't really see except in, you know maybe five percent is going to be these really deep heads that love their concentrates and they love their flowers that are you know we're really utilizing these these uh, labor intensive practices to produce this it's kind of like a labor of love versus commercialization I and mean, it's and it's kind of sad
0: that raises an interesting argument in my mind i i saw a i think it was in the states a farm that was producing some horrible looking plants but their defense was well this is all just going to get converted into extracts and so it doesn't actually really matter but it wasn't just the case that these plants were were like you know visually not very nice like it was the case that they were clearly not very well looked after and that's why they didn't look very good do you feel that that is a disservice or the fact that they are producing some product for someone who probably needs it and is better off with that than nothing is is a good way to go and I guess the deeper philosophy of this question ties into the Australian scene you know I'm of the opinion that the uh the medical system that's being prepared to be rolled out in Australia is actually kind of a farce and so it's like should should you accept the sub quality product and in exchange for having accessibility to it or should you deny that and you know only accept the highest quality of you know the proper sort
1: I mean, it's a conundrum. I think if people generally like need some, like basically as a medical thing, if they need it for their health and it's imperative, by any means necessary. But it's the same thing. It's like, you know, if they have these scraggly cows that look all diseased and they're all caged up and like, oh, it's okay, we're just making hamburger. You know, it's like, that's another thing. I mean, people need the protein. I mean, I don't eat meat, so it's a weird analogy. It just kind of popped into my weird stoner brain. But it, it's like, I think... I really think craft cannabis has been part of our heritage and it's I think that we need to do everything we can to preserve that but you know it's a big world and there's a huge wave coming and it's scary and that's why another reason why I think people should stop bickering and start communicating it's like people should be fighting getting all weird with each other it's like there's a huge force it's like something wicked this way comes it's going to engulf everybody and I think now's the time to create these guilds and create these friendships and these communities and really everybody come together because we're gonna be up against a serious wall that sees cash over anything and I think we have a little bit of a window and it's time to kind of get with the picture but you know for medicine well, by many means necessary but I think we owe it to our fellow humans to make a compassionate product that that has our heart and soul because half the healing you know even is is what you put into it there's a there's a vital essence there's an energy to it and you know the body works in, in mysterious ways it's you know like even psychosomatic medicine and, you know placebos and they work why because we we believe in it with our hearts so it's like I don't know it's a it's a tough one yeah
0: so how do you think the organic versus non-organic argument relates to the quality of the product are you of the opinion that um, organic will always kind of be a better product at least holistically as opposed to synthetic, or do you think that it's you know kind of just down to the skill of the grower? And you've had non-organic product which was quite medicinal, or you know where do you sit on that? I mean, it's
1: it's it depends, I guess, if you're a master of your craft. If you, <clears throat> I I personally just smoke organic, and I love that it has a connection to the earth and to the you know the the biological web of the earth and to energy of it into the dirt into the fungus and there's a lot of forces at play but at the same time you know it's also a science it's like people have you know i've seen like online like the jungle boys they they looks like they i haven't sampled it but it looks like they have it pretty wired and they produce some pretty amazing stuff i haven't seen how it burned or how it tastes or what it does but you know there is a science science is also another tool that People wield in very effective and amazing ways. And if you can create a quality product that people enjoy, it's mostly a market thing. If people want to smoke uh, synthetically grown cannabis that's grown well, that's their prerogative. And, if I mean, it, you know, it's more, I think, a personal preference. I think that cannabis as a plant enjoys being in the soil where it's always been. But, I mean, I'm not going to pass any judgment. I'm, people do amazing jobs growing you know and if they're passionate about it and if they don't use a lot of garbage and they use pure salts they don't use any crazy chemical additives or pesticides fungicides i think it's probably okay
0: and so do you find that being organic yourself um that makes the maintenance of your mother garden or just your general garden for example more easier because this is something i'm constantly telling people is that it's really easy to look after mother plants in organics you know do you agree with that
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean if you're not like pulling clones off of them relentlessly, I think yeah, I think it's super easy. Put it in dirt, you just feed it. You can even just like I'm pretty like MacGyver like ghetto style organic gardener. Like I don't have time to be brewing seed teas and doing ferments and all these amazing things that people are just going for, which I find fascinating. I think I love all these people doing these crazy things, but I don't have the time. I would love to be sprouting seed teas and stuff. I pretty much just throw it in in some good rich potting soil and top dress with organic amendments, maybe make some teas here and there, use a few different things. But I go for ease because I don't have a lot of time. I'm just trying to keep everything alive. I have, you know, hundreds of of different strain mother plants that, you know, that I kind of – it's like my crayon box and do my hardest to keep them alive. But, you know, if a kid gets sick or – I leave on an adventure and someone doesn't water, like, you lose stuff, and that's, it's sad, and definitely soil is probably, I think it's the most friendly. I mean, I know people have systems dialed in where they can look on their cell phone and change things, and they get, there's a camera, and, you know, I have friends that are like, oh, I can leave for two weeks with my hydro system and go to Hawaii, and so, I mean, maybe there's, if you're like Brainiac and you're, and you're super good at it, I mean, if conceivably, the synth route could be better but for ease and just throwing it right in there and just giving it what it wants it's i think dirt is the best or you know even cocoa is hard to deal with because it dries out so fast and i think god made dirt and dirt don't hurt
0: <laughs> i like that i mean kind of expanding on that point your library i imagine that it must contain the biggest differential of growth between plants in anyone's library, you know, you must have some plants that grow three or four times as quickly as others, you know, probably sativa type ones. Do you find that you're constantly having to kind of wrangle these land races compared to, you know, your other strains, which maybe are a bit more tamed?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of my... It's funny to... The strange thing is a lot of my time actually goes to cloning. I'm like, every week I'm cloning because I don't want to lose something or things get too tall. Anytime I cut tops off things, I'm always cloning because, you know, something can happen or I don't have backups or, you know, and, you know, in my mom and dad rooms, I have a couple and, you know, I'm pretty loose. I have the males and the females and the sativas and the indicas. I try and kind of put the indicas on the front row and the sativas in the back, but things do get crazy and they go in there, you know, and they all need, you know, I have it pretty dialed where everybody gets along and I, I don't feed too heavy. So everything kind of stays the way it should but it's hard to keep a library like an encyclopedia Britannica of strains you know it's super easy to lose things and if you're not on it you can get bugs and things are always growing too fast and you have to repot like it's it's hard to i mean i i wonder how those botanical gardens keep everything together i guess they have a whole team but it's not easy to keep a library
0: yeah i can relate and i'm sure mine's nothing compared to the size of yours (laughs) yeah so my question was on top of having a big library you also seem to be at least from what I can see the breeder who releases the most of their personal cuts was this something you intentionally wanted to do or just something which kind of happened through you know just kind of generosity I guess
1: I mean I always like to give them to friends and stuff but you know recently it was weird because you know I have some people saying oh you should keep your really special ones maybe you could you know trademark them or sell them to a in the future to a place, you know, to like when Starbucks has their cannabis division, their special strain and, you know, like, but for me, it's like the way things are going, like I, I love to see what everybody's doing and there. Everybody seems to be kind of focusing on the, you know, cookie, chem, sour, gas thing. And there's a lot of amazing things that are coming out with that. But I wanted people to kind of experience other, other plants. And a lot of people go from clones and I thought, you know, what's the, what better way to not only, you know, help get people understanding cannabis from a completely different thing is to give out some special stuff that maybe is different from other things and that people can riff off of or experience or like, oh, wow, I didn't know it could do this or wow, this is that. Or, oh, here's a Steva that has a great high, but maybe it's quicker. And for me, I, was, I saw everybody hoarding and I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to do the opposite of hoarding. I'm just going to start giving away all the cool stuff because, you know – you can always make new stuff, you, especially if you have a good seed collection. You can always create new stuff, and that's the funny thing about elites is like they all came from seeds. It's funny how everybody traces these elites, but really you could find all these things. They're everywhere, and it's just if you just have the time and you and you're in the keen eye and the passion, you can pretty much pull anything out of your hat. And it's I think it's fun to let to share and let people check out new things and experience stuff. So I think I'm just trying to foster like a kind of an environment of giving and caring and exploration and kind of like sharing.
0: Our buddy Stray Fox had a question relating to that. Is Radio Nursery going to be your main spot to kind of release your cuts in the future?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. It's like I've always – like, you know, a few times I've kind of taken my trays down and tried to give them out. But I don't have time to make trays. And my mom room really isn't the cleanest place. You know, I'm always battling some foreign invader that's slipping in from our organic garden. So I felt kind of like a dork trying to bring in trays because you know you know sometimes i get PMs sometimes i have bugs i don't want to do that so i never found i always wanted to give it to like a local strain place and no one ever you know ever kind of everything kind of fell through and then i met the radio rich people and they have really good hearts and i really like them and it's a male female combo and they do a really amazing job and i'm like rad i would love, this is a great outlet so yeah i'm um, they have a bunch of my stuff, and they're, they're mostly putting it out in this area. I'd love to see people grab those clones and take them other places and get them out. I'd love to see them go all over the world. And uh, pretty soon there'll be some supernatural selections cuts going out, and then just some more stuff and some of you know landrace, uh, maybe some landrace. But you know, people don't really jive with it so much. I kind of just give that to friends. But a lot of the new supernatural selection stuff is indoor friendly, and it's definitely sativa indica hybrids, but. They, you know, they have a nominal flowering time and they still keep their unique character and they're usually friendly inside so I I just want people to ex- really get get exposed to new things and really get passionate about the total spectrum
0: yeah, so I mean, with that kind of point in mind, would you be able to tell us some more stuff about the Dreadbread and the OMG that goes into that one? Because I've got a friend who's grown out some hybrids of that, and we couldn't find a ton of information on it, but we could see that it was of Land Race origins, so we got excited at that. But again, yeah, it'd be cool to know more about that one, seeing as it is popping up a lot in the tester lines at the moment.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just kind of like a, a male, and I was uh, I found a good male that kind of matched my favorite female, and I was like, oh, I'll just try it on some of my outdoor stuff and gather it up from some seeds from some of my land rice outside. But the drug bed is kind of like the first release of Supernatural Selections, and it's your basic F1 hybrid between an Afghani and a Colombian. So it's mango beach and this was like a seed that I got from a friend. Who is he's he in Ecuador, Colombia. I mean – mango Beach kind of is like the blue dream of South America in a way it seems like everybody grows it everybody loves it it, it does well in their environment and it, it ha- so it, who knows if it's really an heirloom or land race it's been around long enough that you would it seems to be some kind of land race or land race hybrid that's turned into an heirloom and it does really well in, the, in it, for uh, most of South America so I got some seeds and grew out the mango beach, and I found one one that was really Really chirp rich and really special and really easy to grow, and it was pretty quick for a mango biche, So I kept that. And then I have this old Afghani line that I got seeds from a long time ago, and it was just, they were just, it was just called Old Afghani or Vintage Afghani. And I popped those many years ago, and I got this really beautiful Afghani expression, kind of like. It almost seems like it it could be a land race or even maybe one of the really early Dutch Afghanis because it's so resinous and nice and it has this kind of like floral citrus thing to it. It's kind of like for a while there was these Afghanis that came out that were kind of more on the citrus end. You know, it seems like through time different varieties of Afghanis have popped up from the acrid to the like more berry smelling to like the bready to the even to the roadkilly. There's all these different expressions, and this seemed to be one I would kind of have to pick it like in the maybe the 80s or something where it's this highly resinous, beautiful, quick, very full, uh, resinous males, uh, just this perfect breeding Afghani for like a modern kind of mindset. So taking that mango biche, kind of sativa, chirpy-rich uh, thing, and putting it with a really nice chirpy-rich uh, Afghani, I got this really cool expression really cool hybrid and so kind of kind of started that as saying like okay this is going to be the first Supernatural selections and the funny thing is I just got uh, we're just starting to pack up the seeds of the new run of the uh, uh, Dreadbread so people should be able to get those in a couple of weeks like uh and I might give away a bunch too, so people can kind of really re- experience and get them excited about these new kind of uh, unique hybrids, and get them excited about people using them in their programs and f 2 ing them and finding stuff, and just try and just try and like really open up that mandala of smells and effects and things. Just get—I don't know—I just want people to get passionate and exposed to to the full extreme possibilities that cannabis has to offer and. From there, people to really find what they like and really get into their niche. Like that's what I I find it hard with today's breeding kind of modality is there's a few people that are really finding their niche and like driving with it, and those are the people that I really like. Like you know, I did, I never really had a thing for autos. I was like, oh, they make good house plants. They're you know great for grandma. And then you know, there's people these days that find like Mephisto. Like he found his niche. Like I'm not an auto guy, but I see what he's doing. I'm like, wow, you with your passion. And you really going deep, you're making amazing things. And I think people are, you know, there's some some of my friends that are doing that too, you know, like Dock D and Strafevox and Snow High and Coastal Seeds and Zam and all these people, they're finding their niche. And whether it's the land races or some people just like, even if you're in super into OGs, like take that thing and run with it or people doing it, selfing. S1s, in, instead of just bashing up S1 hybrids, really go deep. Start doing S2s, S3s. Like, do some weird stuff. Just get into it and really explore and find what you like and just move forward with it. And I think that's, that's kind of my whole thing right now. is to really. It's kind of like the antidote for the tidal wave of homogeny that's, like, coming. And I'm hoping that if we can just light up enough minds and hearts and palates that we can kind of, like, reverse this tide. Of like a, it's almost like a global warming of cannabis, you know it's it's coming, and if we can turn things around, we 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 can really create something special.
0: Awesome answer because I love Mephisto as well, and they actually had a question for you. It was, have you ever come across any really cool landrace autos?
1: You know That's funny because I I I kind of ha- have, and I've heard of some stuff too. You know, there's things like Mighty Might, which is supposedly an old nepali indica i've never seen indicas in nepal so i find it a little hard but it's one of those ones it wasn't you know maybe i had ruderalis or something or maybe it was about auto but it was one of those plants that was kind of like semi-auto and you know in morocco a lot of their plants are kind of auto in a way and i've and i've you know bred i've worked with some moroccan plants that i've collected and i'm like oh wow i could probably slip this in and i could really kind of kick things into gear and i but, you know, I realized it's not its not really my thing. And I'm like, there's people that are way more passionate about it and are way more knowledgeable about it. And I respect and I'm just letting them go for it. I mean, so, yeah, I don't have any plans to really do autos or really do it. But there are, you know, besides Rudolph, there's some Afghanis. Like, there's that auto Afghani. There are some plants – just due to their geography and due to their selection over time have created some of these these tendencies where they grow when they hit a certain size or they grow at when they hit a certain duration I mean it's out there and but I think that the auto spectrum has been pretty dialed um, you know especially over in Spain they're so autoed out and all the auto feminized now that they've kind of got it wired they've got these genes kind of locked in for what they want to do especially now in America with some of the auto people here i i think it's kind of a done deal almost you know what i mean
0: for sure and so just to loop back on another point you made earlier about s1s or feminized seeds, how do you feel about them you know you've never done them yourself is that because you're not interested or you don't feel they're as good as regulars
1: um you know I've tr- i a long time ago i tried i got my sts and i did all that and it was just I just made a mess out of everything. It was horrible. I couldn't get out to work. And I was kind of like, it was just kind of more my whole thing on it was like I wanted to unlock the gene pool. If I could S1 or S2, you can really crack open a strain before we had like the whole genetic testing. And we, you know, we, you could really kind of see what was in there. You could see maybe it's parents, it's grandparents. You could kind of, you know, that's the unique thing about selfing stuff is you could, you can kind of see what's in there. And some, you know, some of my friends that do a lot of S1 work, is they'll get, you know, 40 plants that look exactly alike, and then they'll get five that are, like, completely different. So it was this, like, kind of something that was back in its history, and it's it's a really unique tool. But for me, you know, it's – I know it, it does happen in nature, but for me, I just I, – I don't know. Maybe it's just – I like just basic sexual breeding, you know. I just like to bring males and females together, and that's my jam, and that's my niche, and that's kind of what I do. And, you know, I, for a while, I was kind of down on autos. I mean, not autos, sorry. Uh, right at Femmes. One point. Femmes. And, you know, I didn't really understand it as much until I met people that really just truly had a way with it. You know, like Inspector, he does amazing autos. Or Illuminati, you know, Incognito, he does crazy good autos. Matt Riot does amazing autos. Some people have, the, they just have the... They have a gift, and they have they know what they're doing, and they push it in different directions. I'm not a big fan of the taking, a, like a basically your kind of flavor of the week, taking an elite cologne and feminizing it and spraying it on everything. Sure, there's going to be unique things in that, but it's kind of I mean that's just really kind of a, sh- a kind of a short-sighted short sighted shortcut. It's easy. I mean, it, it is. I guess I can't really pass judgment. It does It is cool, but it's kind of I call that kind of like your. That's kind of like the kindergarten level of breeding, because you because yeah. you, you know, and not in a, not in a derogatory sense. I mean, like as a kid, like you're so excited, you want to have fun, you want it fast, you want to see what this does. What happens if you know I put this Lego on this? Like, it, it's great. It serves its purpose, but I think it's. I think some of the deep magic comes from the real work that people put into stuff. So, I think mm-hmm. selfing is. You know, I used to not think it was that great. Now people have changed my mind. People change my mind every day. That's what I love about this community is people, when they're passionate and they find their niche, they truly can create magic that hasn't happened before. So I give them props to everyone that does that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It, it almost reminds me of like a spray and pray type of approach. Interesting you brought up Matt, you know, we had Matt on the show a little while ago. I think what's most interesting about your friendship with him and what people seem to be interested in at least is how kind of polar opposite you guys are as people, you know, like how did you meet Matt and do you find in general you're drawn towards people who are quite different to you personality wise or do you find you're more kind of likely to hang with someone who's more similar to you?
1: I don't know, you know, for friends it's I think more similar, I've definitely met people Um, online and in person that you know that we're much different we probably wouldn't be friends if we didn't have cannabis (laughs) in our lives to geek out on but really you know if people are if people are cool to me I'm cool to them I don't try and create an attitude I try and meet people at a basic human level you know people sometimes will rug me on the wrong way or uh, they are arrogant or this and that but if someone is is really themselves they have a personality they're even a character like I'll give them the space to be who they are and I for Matt, like, you know, I met back in the kind of the older forum days when it was more of a small community and, uh, he was doing something really cool. He was working, you know, he was, he was trying to create a medical garden for patients. And I think this is where he got a lot of the bad rap is, um, he was started to ask a lot of breeders for seeds cause he wanted to do a lot of different stuff for this, this, uh, medical garden that he was part of. And, and it, you know, it was very altruistic. And I was like, sure. And a lot of people said, sure. And I guess it all fell through, and um, and it didn't happen, and he still had the seeds, but that's okay. People give seeds altruistically, and I think uh may, later on maybe he was gonna uh, there was an auction, and maybe one or two of those seed packs came up, and it's like, why don't you give people seeds? Like, who cares what they do with them? And I think people got uptight, and they. You know, and then all these rumors started, and then as people come on later in life, they don't really go back and look at the actual information. They just hear the rumors and take them for point blank. And I know that he rubs people the wrong way, but he that's his service. I think in our his community, where there's many characters, and there's many people that have vital positions, and his service is to call people out and not take any BS and to be a punker and punk rocker and – you know, I, I think we have a place for everybody, and I know people, some people hate him, some people love him. He's a great guy. We share a lot of stuff on music, and he's got a kind heart, but he doesn't take any BS, and I, I kind of like him for that, and I like him for that he, he doesn't take a lot of flack, and he almost, you know, I he's almost like a punching bag. A lot of, I think a lot of people uh, are spared because he takes a lot of the hits, and I think that he's his vital in a way to keeping everything fresh and fluid i think everybody plays a part and if everybody comes you know if everybody's communicating from their mind and their heart i think there's room for everybody and i I like matt i think he's a cool guy and i I, we get along great and there's a there's a lot of characters like that in the cannabis world that are kind of where our our personalities are kind of a lot different but uh we share a passion for things and I think that's in any community. So, yeah, I I cherish those kind of characters and people in our community that are a lot different, that are kind of pushing things.
0: Just to add to that, we also love Matt and his take-no-shit attitude. (laughs) Um, So just on a bit of a different topic, when is a project done for you? You know, are you someone who sets deadlines on things? Do you think, well, if it's not working by this point, I'm going to move on? Or do you kind of go by feel and you think, no, I'm going to stick with it till it feels like it's done?
1: Uh, you know, for me, I have lots of projects. Like I do a lot of hybrid work. And then for my kind of personal projects where I'm doing, you know, people don't think I really line breed that much. But I have a lot of different things I've line bred. I just kind of keep them more for myself as, as my own breeding tools or to make them more inbred so that I can use them with other inbred things. I don't really release so much line stuff because I really, it's my personal work that I make kind of for myself or for my toolbox. And you know, recently I, I kind of I got some flack online, and I realized, okay, so you know, I, I hear what people are saying, and and I get it, and and so now I'm kind of like, oh, you know, I'm gonna start, get, I'm gonna start letting out some of my line work. You know, I have a, I have a, my purple unicorn line is like at F4, and I think my dragon's blood is at F5 or six, and I have you know I have some lucky charms. I have a lot of my strains I have bred out, and I think you know, especially as things go extinct, I might start releasing some of my line Bread stuff. My, my whole theory was that I like to people to buy F1 hybrids to get something special. And then if they want to go deeper, and find, they can do F2s and they can find things that look like just like the parents and they can really pick out what they like, not what I like. like I'm not trying to tell you what's cool. I'm trying to give you a maximum uh, gene pool to work with so you can really find what you like. And that was my whole thing. But now I'm finding that people kind of do want to know what kind of I like and what I'm pushing things to so I'm going to release some of my kind of my, my more worked lines and I hope that, f- that makes people happy, and I hope that they can use them in their own programs
0: so with that in mind do you have a preferred type of project like do you find that F1s bring you the most kind of happiness or do you like to line breed but you know you just don't see it as necessarily fit for public release like what how would you rank things in terms of you know f1s line breedings i guess Femme would be at the bottom by definition <laughs> yeah.
1: uh you know i personally like f1s It goes it, it there's something magic about two things meeting for the first time there's this you know and even even nature congratulates a true f1 in hybrid vigor like in people too, if you have like you know when the French colonized Vietnam, you get these combinations. Like look at women, women are amazing, aren't they? The most beautiful, they're like these, they're like these walking biological flowers. And if you take a and say a Vietnamese man and a French woman, you know in Vietnam they breed, it creates these amazing special things, and I love that, and that's why I like. And even my you know, my philosophical and my religious beliefs are are based in this kind of uh, combination of energy and awareness are basically male and female, these polarities. And I love when these things come together and that's kind of what I like to give out. And then, you know, all these other projects, like I've had a rogue kill skunk project going for years and years and years, and I just piddle away at it and i you know, I do so much work behind the scenes with all these different kind of projects I do. I have a lot of weird Projects, purple projects and land race projects and I do a lot of uh, I do a lot of line breeding primarily it's just really for myself and really for it making my my toolkit a lot easier to deal with you know I, I'm a really big proponent of making your own tools and making your own things to work with you know I think that's is as we get more proficient in cannabis breeding and combining we can really do things that people never really even imagine you can do. So, for me, I like to keep a lot of personal projects always open. They could take years, uh, uh, even short-term little fun things. But uh, a majority of my stuff does tend to be in those mm-hmm. just in those F1 hybrids, and that's kind of what the market wants. Like if I just did, if I only did Nureka. I would be living out a cardboard box. Like, you know, I mean, what sells is the, is these, is the mashups, like the special mail and elite mashups. Everybody wants the new best thing. They want the turp heavy new flavors. And, you know, and I try and develop my, my special mails as I, you know, I try and think of it ahead a little bit and see where the market's going and see what people are into. And I kind of base my new mails on that and then I release things and, you know, people say I release a lot of stuff, and I do because I have made a hell of a lot of seeds. I've been doing this for a long time, and I make big runs of seeds, and I keep them in the fridge. I vacuum seal them and I test them. And sometimes I made, you know, things I made six years ago are just now seeing the face of the day. Maybe they didn't get tested right, or someone disappeared, or I never got around to them. And so when things good things come about as when i usually release them and it seems to work and it 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 gives the illusion of this massive workflow when really it's just this dance through time
0: and and selection (laughs) that was my cat yeah he's all yeah (laughs) (laughs) so if we just jump into the idea of line breeding a little further I've had a few questions from people regarding the sunshine daydream, if it'll ever be done as a, a line as opposed to our crosses, because obviously there's some hybrids of it floating around at the moment. Will you ever consider F2ing it, F3ing it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think I do a lot of big searching through lines in the summer when I can uh, have them outside, and then sometimes I'll bring them inside. So I'll, like I'll utilize our, our our outdoor season by into like – i'll plant stuff early and when it gets mature i'll throw it in my flower room and i'll kind of do that three times so i can really move through a lot of stuff and you know maybe next year you know each year i pick i pick a couple of my lines and i really kind of look deep to see what's going on and this year it was a uh, i did a big uh dirty hippie uh seed pop which is basically you know i mean dirty hippie f2 and then i also did a big tiger melon so those are kind of the two right now that i'm kind of going through and seeing if i want to take it further and kind of see what it opens up in the f2 so yeah i think any line that that is really special i can always revisit it and i i really do and that's definitely sunshine daydream is one that i really love and i would love to just do it just so i can get another cup cut back because through time and space i've lost both of my favorite phenos so i'm kind of I don't even have any sunshine daydream, and it is a really special plant in in how it works with the body and how it eases, like, the neurological uh, pain that people have and a lot of – it seems to be, like, one of my more uh, medical-orientated strains, even more so than, like, the good medicine or the barefoot doctor and some of those CBD-rich ones. Like, it is a really special strain, and that's kind of why I retired – that mail, I didn't go for it because it's like – it's a strain where it's like – I don't think anything's absolutely perfect, but it's one of the strains that kind of stands on its own and it doesn't really need to be – need to be messed with. And I kind of only pulled that Sunshine Daydream mail back out again because – through a mishap I lost the mail that I was going to use on a pollination and I was like well you know what I have this really old sunshine day tree mail that I use a long time for the, go for the sunshine Four and stuff I'm just going to throw it in there you know it's a great plant it should make some really fun stuff and, and that's how this kind of came about and then I decided to kind of kill that male so that those will be really special and people can kind of go through them and that also too that it makes me want to go through more and really dig deeper into lines and I think that's really nice kind of like going it's kind of like You know, visiting an old lover in a way. You know, it's like there's you cherish that, and you get to come back, and you know, there's a familiarity. You kind of know what you're looking for, but at the same time, you're
0: excited, and and it feels so good. And so, do you still have the Bubba Shine?
1: I don't. You know, that's sad. That's when I lost, uh, and I
0: lost the Bubba Shine mail. And the funny
1: thing is, the story about the Appalachia mail would have never been used if I wouldn't have lost the Bubba Shine mail at the last second. The Bubba Shine was going to be the big pollinator that of all those hybrids that were the Appalachia. So I, I just lost the female to dudding, which is a is strange thing that really drives me nuts. That's kind of affecting a lot of people that no one seems to really know what it is, but I have made a, quite a bit of hybrids with it. And I actually have a new male I'm kind of looking into right now. I'm playing around with it. it's a Bubba shine instant karma cross. So that's kind of my current Bubba shine kind of, play around with kind of thing I'm
0: doing. Okay. You mentioned your CBD projects. Where does CBD kind of sit for you in the scheme of breeding? You know, I know that the CBD lines you have released in the past were mostly freebies and there's some information around them that you release. you know, just kind of saying, oh, you know, I had these laying around. I just wanted to get them out to people. Do you plan to restock those or potentially work them further? And the reason why I ask this is because I had a friend who um, had good medicine And he thought Mm -hmm. it was just like the best plan he'd ever had, just even in you know a recreational sense. Sorry, and um, and he was really bummed out he lost it, and I was like, damn, it'd be good to get some more of those.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can always get you some. I I still have kind of all. I think I made like I think I have like a dozen CBD, maybe more, maybe like fifteen different CBD hybrids. And you know, originally it was more just. exploring that medical side it was when i first made the good medicines it was back before everybody was in C- to cbd there was only really harlequin and then i i don't even know if acdc was in the state so much then and i was like you know i want to explore this i, I want to you know I, my emphasis on really for me is like i love recreational i love medical but really my thing is i want to create spirit nourishing strains like strains that awaken something inside you that that's kind of Either dormant or you're, that you're cultivating, but for CBD, I was so interested, and in that it was right around the time that SC Labs opened in our in our uh, in Santa Cruz, kind of where I live. And I was like, you know what, this is cool. I'm going to try this out. I, I, I you know I took in my samples. I took in my early leaf samples for my males. I think it was like six years ago or five years ago. Found that and played around, and I was really excited to see. Wow, like it was just another one of those things. Like, what is going to happen? And with the good medicine, you know, I found a CBD-rich male, and I took it to the F2, and then I released those. And then with that, I I started pollinating a lot of stuff with the good medicine. A lot of the other uh, CBD clones were coming out, like the Amrita and the ACDC, and then even things like heroin and special things. I made a CBD OG one that people like. And then the the logical conclusion for, like, a really – I was like, okay, Sunshine Daydream is probably, like, one of my favorite – pain relieving strains. What if I made a CBD rich sunshine daydream? And that's what kind of barefoot doctor is. And that's kind of the one I think I will push forward if I do. But you know, I give, I think I've given away over, yeah, thousands of packs of CBD seeds for free, because I don't really, I think it's funny when people charge a lot of money for the CBD rich strains. Like I, that, that's our Trojan horse to get get cannabis into, like, basically all of America that that, it, that have been, like, totally brainwashed. If there's a plant that can heal their kids, that can heal their grandparents, I think we get, get those seeds out. Like, you know, I think somebody should just devote a whole warehouse and just pump out a million CBD seeds. Get those things everywhere. Like, it's truly our Trojan horse to get into the hearts and minds of people that have no clue. And so my whole thing is I don't spend as much time on the CBD work is because I, I just give it all away free. And I usually always... Try and make each pollination run a couple of CBD strains. Like I'll usually throw in an ACDC or Harlequin into anything I'm making. But for my specific CBD projects, I think the good medicine and the barefoot doctor were like the ones that I really put enough, the most time into. And I love it when I see people make more of those or use those in their own project. Like I think the medical aspect is, is amazing and it's beautiful. And I really think that's one of the ways that we're really going to see cannabis uh, basically become the our main plant on earth like it's always been since you know that the dawn of time
0: and so which kind of uh, sorry which cbd strain do you like to work with the most i guess in in all regards because i mean i've personally have had acdc and i thought that was fantastic And then on the other Mm. hand, I've heard breeders say that Charlotte's Web, for example, while being a great strain, doesn't particularly work very well for breeding or at least I heard that in the sense that it's not very true breeding, like not a lot of the resulting seeds will carry those really high CBD traits or at least I'm told that. With Mm. that in mind, which kind of CBD cuts do you shine more to or do you find work better for your projects?
1: Well, I I I think why Charlotte's Web doesn't totally work out is because it, it wasn't like a finished product. It, I think those guys kind of heisted it from um, another breeder that was working on uh, CBD-rich plants, and I don't think he fully – it was just a one-off of one of the stuff, and I think he's perfected it. I think it's from uh, a, a man in Colorado who that we all know and love, and, and his name has a numeric number in it. <laughs> um, uh not, but I don't want to ruffle any feathers, so uh, I think that's probably why you see Charlotte's Web doesn't work. Is I think it wasn't a fully realized line. I think it was something that is they kind of grabbed me around with. I I personally like Harlequin myself because it does seem to be true breeding. It, it's not it's not coming from Spain and that whole Z7 like that whole you know CBD crew and I, they tend to be kind of territorial and. About their stuff, and they tend to be a little, you know, a little bit snooty. So I try and stay away from any kind of drama. And Harlequin was brought to America by, uh, I think, it was a seed form by Wayne, Wade Laughter, and it's an old, I think it's a Dutch or Swiss or some kind of old combination that they had there that just expressed that. And I, it's kind of the first one we had in California, and I think even in the states. And I've always kind of just connected more with that. And it, and, you know, and it's a beautiful plant, and it has it's very resinous. And you know, ACDC is awesome. It really pumps the CBD, and it's very true breeding. It really crushes it on that. But it, it's kind of like a wily, kind of almost sativa-like plant. You know, it's a pretty kind of it's a giant bush. And I mean, I've made some crosses with it that it come out great, and I've kind of tamed the beast. But I think if I had to choose a CBD-rich cultivar, it would probably be um the Harlequin. Although, you know, Coastal Seeds, he's finding that some of their Panama Red work is coming up rich in CBD, which is really amazing. And, you know, that kind of goes back to the whole adage of people like, oh, yeah, Panama Red, that stuff will knock you out. That was like the tequila bud. Like, it, you know, even back in the day, Panama Red was kind of known as kind of like this knock you on your ass stuff. And that makes sense that it, it maybe was a sativa that had some level of kind of a CBD in it.
0: Yeah, okay. If we just take a step back and look at just breeding in general, not necessarily CBD, how do you find the location of where you breed affects things? Do you find that when you... I mean, obviously, there's going to be physical differences. I've read that, uh, I believe it was the China Yuan strain on one of your Instagram posts said it, it doesn't particularly perform well indoors. So we'll put that bit aside. Instead, let's look at the breeding aspect. If you were to try to breed that plant indoor, do you think that would have you know, kind of uh, epigenetic effects on the seeds resulting? It's like, so do you think that land race lines should be ideally bred outside if possible because it's going to, you know, maybe be more synergistic with their genetics or what's your feeling on this?
1: I mean, you know, back like 10 years ago, I would say that they probably... I mean, that's a tough one. It's... I don't know. I think that you can with... If you your will to anything i think you can uh work with the plant and basically get it to perform anywhere and i think that before uh during prohibition most people were growing inside so it was important to uh to try and push that gene pool into uh, more harmonious uh expressions inside like you wanted to try you need definitely land races freak out Like, especially ones that you, you know, like I have a lot of problems when I bring land races from like the Himalayas and I plant them straight out here at sea level. Like, they go cuckoo. They don't know what's going on. They're like, they're used to being up in these high elevations in this certain environment. And all of a sudden now they're in the fog line at the beach. Like, they really tweak out. So I think you can create a more harmonious uh, environment for them indoors if you're really catering to them. But I think it's important though to, if you are going to, make land race hybrids that they are stable indoors. Like that's the whole that's why supernatural selection's been so hard and it's taken so long to release all these things is because it's not easy to to mate land races and expect them to do well inside. Like they do crazy stuff. They do weird stuff. They're they're very hermaphroditic indoors. They they you know, and that's the whole thing with my roadkill skunk project. I can make, sure, I make plants that smell like roadkill and get you super high, and, and, and they hit all the, you know, they dot all the eyes and they check all the boxes, but they they don't like to be indoors. Like, for some reason, the one I'm working on, it's just, it's about finding the specific outcross. So they don't, things, a lot of things just don't like being in an artificial environment, and they express that. So I think there is some magic in, in really working a line indoors to remove the hermaphrodite traits but also outdoors if you can you can create some amazing heirlooms if you say say you went to Thailand and you were in Chiang Rai or something and you got a sack of pot and you got some seeds and you loved it and you brought it home and you grow it outside in your garden it may tweak out it may herm out the first time you grow it but then you find your favorites you breed those you get the seeds you grow it again after three or four times of it experiencing a new environment it's going to reprogram itself and it's going to adapt to the new environment and it's going to slowly become your kind of personal heirloom. So it's all about, I mean, it's about doing the work really on those things. It's, you know, it's not just taking these, these hyper chirpy amazing plants that are all been bred indoors that are, you know, in slapping them together. That's it's easy, but trying to get things that are from completely different environments and bring them together in a new thing is, is really difficult. It's like that, it's
0: like that Eddie Murphy
1: movie, um, what was? That? <laughs> Where they, he was like an African king and they dropped him off in New uh, York
0: <laughs> something, King of Queens or something like that
1: <laughs> yeah it's like the same thing you get a plant from that you drop it off here you gotta do some work on that thing you can't you know it's yeah so it's, strange things happen and that's the beauty that's why I really tell people it's like explore the gene pool you know collect seeds collect as many seeds as you can trade seeds like get a good seed collection find crazy cultivators travel like Really, give yourself all the colors you can to create your your art. You know, and also don't let anybody ever tell you that you're breeding the wrong way. Like that's one thing. I you know I have deep respect for all the horticultural science people, and I have a background kind of in that. That I, but really you know no one can tell you how to breed the proof is in the pudding if you can create something good with your skills and the way you do it then that's all that matters and it's like you don't need a Mendel square you need like you need good senses you need an open heart open mind you need to create awareness with the plant and you can do anything you never let anyone and all these people are like oh i You know, I went to horticultural science. That's beautiful. You know, you can learn all about a paintbrush. You can learn all about paint. You can learn all about canvas, but that doesn't make you a good artist. So I say to people, just follow their passion. You know, really get into this and really make it something that nourishes you and your community. And don't let anyone tell you what to do. And also, don't tell anybody what they can't do. Everybody needs to get along and really and really do this. I think it, we have a great community and a great future ahead of us if we can just keep our eyes on the prize.
0: So I think you already answered it a little bit with that last answer, but what would be your advice for a new breeder? And by this I mean someone who's maybe thinking about getting into breeding, not someone who's just started. Um, I would say, you know,
1: um, for new breeders is uh, – a start growing plants grow a lot of different plants find what you enjoy find what you like um and then kind of uh, stick to that like if there's a plant that speaks to you or a certain strain then yeah take that work with that mix it with something else you like build up your seed collection trade trade clones you know really get into that form a community make friends like i think that's the best thing and you know what as, as a beginner give away seeds make cool stuff give away your seeds get the hype out it's like and, you know, I also, too, is, like, for me, I don't call myself a breeder. I call call myself kind of like an artist or I, I kind of just work with the plant. Maybe I'm just a plant helper. I really think that using your senses and even using your sixth sense, like my the whole thing, I think, is like a heart-based breeding. It's like, you know, there, you have your five senses, but you also have a sixth sense, that sense of kind of this knowing, and that's basically your heart. You know, your heart has an electromagnetic force 5000 times bigger than your mind it, it radiates out like five feet and i think that's where people you know they get a where uh you can kind of feel things out and if you can tune into that that's where you can connect with nature and that's also where people get their sixth sense or they have this funny feeling about something or they connect with something that's like the heart's electromagnetic field interacting with other things and i think cultivating that and cultivating an awareness uh, of yourself and the plant being a good person and being friendly and being humble i think that's the best way to start out breeding and just if you have passion and you have your senses intact then you're you're all the way there pretty much you just got to move forward
0: stay tuned for part two